God doesn't love you. Let's fear him. Hi, I'm Kevin Smith, and Red State is coming to theaters October 19th, 2011. That's right, it's the 17th anniversary of the release of my first film, Clerks. But rather than sell it to some other jackass, we're releasing that shit ourselves under our new Smodcast Pictures banner. But 10 months is a long wait, I realize, for a lot of people who want to see the flick, didn't get to see it at Sundance, where it played really well. So I'm bringing the movie to you personally right to a theater in your hometown that's right bitch welcome to the red state usa tour we kick off on march 5th at the world-renowned radio city music hall in new york city that's right red state in the blue state this is the official premiere of the movie you can be there walk the carpet see the movie we're gonna do q a afterwards michael parks probably gonna come out and sing some fucking songs it's gonna be a hoo. It's going to be a show. It's going to be fantastic fucking time. But it's not going to stop there because then we roll on through the rest of this great old United States of ours playing at Boston's Wilbur Theater, Chicago's Harris Theater, the State Theater in Minneapolis, the Michigan Theater in Ann Arbor, Close Hall in Indianapolis, the Midland Theater in Kansas City, Clark State Pack Center in Ohio, the Paramount in Denver, McAllister Auditorium on the Tulane campus in New Orleans, the Paramount Theater in Austin, Texas, the Cobb Energy Performing Arts Theater in Georgia, McCall Hall, wow, that's tough to say, in Seattle, and the Wiltern in Los Angeles with lots more dates coming, and you can request a screening in your hometown. All you have to do to find out all this information, go to coopersdell.com. That's right, coopersdell.com. See the teaser, see a bunch of stuff that we've been putting up there to promote our movie, because we're going to do it ourselves. Why do we need some other jackass to sell the movie? It's like having a baby and then handing it off to some stranger being like, you raise it. Nobody knows how to raise your kid better than you, parents. And I'm a parent of Red State, so I'm going to take it all the way. I'm going to grow that lad or lass into a strong, tall adult. Now, fair warning, you are going to be paying more to see Red State on this tour than you would normally pay to go see any movie in your local multiplex. Uh, in some cases, maybe 10 times as much as you pay to see at the local multiplex. But here's the thing. You don't normally get a Q&A after a movie, do you, with the director? And you don't normally hear from special guests, including the great Michael Parks himself. This is a once-in-a-lifetime kind of deal we're talking about. You come to the show, ain't never going to be repeated anywhere else. Won't ever be the same. And I'm not asking you guys to pay much more than you're already paying to see me do a Q&A or a live Smodcast. And this time, I'm bringing you a goddamn terrifying motion picture shown in stately grandeur the way they used to show movies, one city at a time, one show at a time, like they used to do with Gone with the Wind and shit like that. Man, we're kicking this shit old school, son. True fucking 3D. This ain't this bullshit 3D of you put on glasses and shit. I'm going to be in the third dimension, bitch, standing right in front of you. That not enough to get you to go to Red State USA Tour? Fine, let me sweeten the pot. Are you an Askew Universe fan? Do you love Jane Silent Bob, Clerks? If you come to the Red State USA Tour, you are going to see props and costumes from the entire View Askew Universe. And we're getting ready for the official Askew Universe garage sale where we sell our past to pay for our future. Own shit worn by Jane Silent Bob in the movies and help us distribute Red State outside the ridiculously expensive and wasteful studio system. Ladies and gentlemen, anybody can make a film. And what we aim to prove with the Red State USA Tour, anybody can release a film as well. Who better to sell their art than the artist him or herself? Self-reliance is true independence, kids. Indie film isn't dead, it's just grown up. 
Welcome to Indie Film 2.0. Red State USA Tour. Come on out and see us. Kicking off March 5th. Radio City Music Hall in New York. And then rolling out through the rest of this great land of ours. Come see us, man. It is a once-in-a-lifetime experience you will never forget. And more importantly, you do this, you fuck with the stupid studio system. And maybe they put out a good picture every now and then. A little more dark night. You know what I'm saying? A little less cop-out. Go to coopersdell.com for the tickets. That's C-O-O-P-E-R-S-D-E-L-L.com. That's where you can get all your ticket information. See all the posters for Red State. Check out the spooky teaser. Get everything you need. Coopersdell.com. Go there right now. Get yourself some goddamn Red State tickets and join us on the Red State USA tour, man. Fear God. I fear God. You better believe I fear God. Very few people can really make the claim that they're a writer uh, with the definity, the authenticity of the guy that I'm going to sit down and talk to because not only is he a writer, he's a red writer. This motherfucker has been read lots and lots of this man's work in print. We're going to find out exactly how much um, as we get to know him and get to know the cause uh, that he's working on. Uh, ladies and gentlemen, uh, the great, the legendary, uh, a good friend uh, as of late, Mitch Album. How are you, sir? A good friend part means more to me. Thank you. <laughs> well, we become friends, and it's a, it's a weird. I know, and everybody laughs at that. Yeah. Said, no, 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 not that Kevin Smith. Yeah. You know? <laughs> no, you like you, you mean somebody else, but no, the football I said, no, player. Kevin the football player. Yeah. Or there were several football players named Kevin Smith. We had two on one team in in Detroit. Mm. And I said, no, I've become friendly with Kevin Smith, the filmmaker, the guy who did like Clerks. <laughs> yeah. Mallrats. Yeah. Yeah. Uh. You, but you did the Tuesdays with more. I said, yeah, I know. And he's my friend. Yeah. So, uh, I, I get a kick out of it. I've, I've made friends in all kinds of new places on account of you. That, yeah. Yeah. It's true. I am, I'm a pass key into a weird and disparate <laughs> world. Um, the, uh, we came together. I mean, of course, uh, you can't live in, in, uh, I was going to say America or probably the world in the last fucking 10, 15 years and, and not have heard of one of your books, if not your name or seen you somewhere or heard you somewhere. Your work's out there. How, I mean, don't brag. Don't you, but pull the dick out a little bit. You must know how much. Where, how many, how many imprint versions of your work you have? Like in that way that you, you walk with the, yes, you walk with the confidence of a man who knows that A, he fucks well, B, as a giant <laughs> cock, uh, and C, he could like level a man with a blow. And that comes with the confidence of like, yes, bitch, I have sold X. Uh, yeah, well, let's just stick with the selling part of X. <laughs> I don't know, the other three things didn't automatically come with selling X. But I, I, you know, like you, I mean, when you have films that go around the mm. world, you don't ever really keep track of the, the numbers don't mean anything. But the last number I heard was 30 million books. I mean, take me back to uh, 30, 40 years ago and somebody says you're going to sell 30 million books. I would have said you want to talk about me because I'm not going to be a writer. I had no intention of being a writer. What was the was intention? Pro- okay, childhood. If you go back as far as you're suggesting, yeah. a cartoonist. Really, was my first love. Cartoons. Can you draw? Oh yeah. 
Like how oh, well? Yeah. Well, really? cartoons You're... I can draw well. Yeah, I mean I can draw. I took art lessons, all that stuff. I did like comic books when I was a kid. Made up my own comic books. Collected all of them. Did, did you send into TV Guide and draw Tippy and shit like that? Draw I the, did. Did you I really? I did. I did. And then those little matchbook things yes. where you said you too can get a free art lesson. Then I realized like what I was winning, I already had. I had <laughs> taken an art lesson. What I have to draw Gumby for? Right. But yeah, I would. Do, Woody Woodpecker was my first. Uh, uh, and there was a guy named Nagy, was a famous cartoonist of the time or whatever, and I bought his books and I just sat around drawing Woody Woodpeckers and Mighty Mouses and Mickey Mouses and all. Then I graduated onto Peanuts and then I got to superheroes and I created my own little superhero and all that. So the first. Wait a second. Who was your superhero? Uh, well, he was Shadow Man. Get out of Shadow here. Shadow Man, because he could become the shadows. Right. Little did I know later that my grandmother would say, you know, like I created this whole thing. I had all these colors and everything and my grandmother lived with us and she was there. I said, hey, take a look at this. Look at the shadow. She goes, yeah, there was, we had a, a radio show, The Shadow. And I said, you did? You know, what do you mean? You, that's my first. Was, that, why am I only hearing about this now? Right. You know, when you're a kid, like you think you've invented everything. Of course. And you say, I'm going to come up with a guy who dresses like a bat. And then, and then you turn on the TV. And there is one. So, you know, now, of course, you worry every time you sit down to create anything. You go, am I going to get sued? There must be another example. First thing I do if I come up with a book title, I Google it to see if someone else has already got it. You know? Right. But you realize when you're a kid, you think you invented everything because there's i mean your life experience is so limited that it's like if you haven't heard of it it hasn't happened yet yeah, you're like right. a you're like a dog when you take the dog out of the house for a walk and they bark at everything right, in the neighborhood right. every smell it's just like well this is my this is my kingdom yeah, what is right. this doing here which you is know? why they urinate on everything <laughs> exactly i didn't do that right. uh but yeah you know i want to be a cartoonist and then eventually somewhere early teens i shifted into music and music was really my thing all through my teens all through college i only went to college where i encountered more who became you know such a big part of my life i only went there to please my parents you know like you got to go to college college, brandeis university well hold on take me back further where did you start it all begins we we share common origins to some degree what part of new jersey southern so where is four off the turnpike oh that's way fucking yeah, southern, way that's like atlantic city just outside of philadelphia basically i was in a, grew up in a town called haddon township new jersey mm-hmm. a, a little uh cul-de-sac called uh, oak, uh oakland and cornwall drive was my address and i was a jersey kid and we were you know like you know oh, God. jersey is jersey is its own identity and but it's close to these other identities. So like it's New York if you're up there. Well, I was gonna say you probably had the South had the Philly, Philly chip on your Philly shoulder. Philly was like Wonderland. Yeah. Whereas for us it was New York, yeah. and you live with Over a chip the on your shoulder because in New York is like, oh, you're New Jersey, right. yeah, scumbag. And they looked at us the same way. Philly, same yeah. way. Yeah, you yeah, know, yeah. when from Philadelphia you look towards where I live, you saw Camden first. Right. So that shaped everything. <laughs> that's like holding a prism up to your eye. <laughs> what? <laughs> you know, you live beyond Camden. Yeah. So we had the inferiority complex to philly like you guys did to new york and i was a jersey kid it's like the end of schindler's list where they're like they hate you in the east and they hate you in the west <laughs> like in jersey you're just kind of stuck in the middle and i think it it's inter- interesting it breeds people that for some reason have to try harder because of that yeah you know what i'm right. saying like We're you, overachievers you have to work you, your way out of new jersey but you know? and, and what, did I you never leave new jersey right <laughs> in many ways yeah. but you didn't you left but not like i gotta get the fuck out of here but you left and found a place that became more home to you than yeah. where you were from. Detroit, ultimately. Yeah. I, I had a lot of stops along the way. I mean, I had a lot of weird jobs. Where'd the music things. take you first? Well, uh, most, uh, okay. 
In high school, I was in an oldies band. Now, remember, I'm a kid, right. so I'm 14, 15. Generally, you're not in oldies bands, but right at that was right at the time that Sha Na Na and uh, American Graffiti and all that stuff right, came right, out. Right. So it was just a the sur- greasification, if you will. Exactly. The 50s came back. And there was a surge of the 50s music, and we fell into it in our neighborhood because we were still kind of doing what they did in 1958. Right. We would get in our cars and cruise roll down the window with your elbow out the window and just kind of look over people and then go down one avenue and then turn around and come back the, the other way. Right. And that was your Saturday night. <laughs> there you was. What'd you hey, guys we do? took two turns. Yeah. You know, <laughs> stop at the donut shop. Stop at the pizza place. Panzerotti's. I don't know if they had them up where you were. What is that's a Panzerotti? That's a pizza that is uh, turned inside and deep fried. So it's as if you shit. Took a pizza. How do I not hear oh, about this until now? Franco's Panzerotti's. I were, mean, it sounds like a calzone, a deep fried calzone to some degree. No, it's a. It's actually a a pizza. Uh huh. That is literally turned inside and then deep fried to a crisp on the outside so that it's unlike a calzone, which is still like a pastry. Yeah, or yeah, bacon. Yeah. It is like fried on the outside, but with boiling hot pizza <laughs> sauce and cheese on the inside. So you burn the entire roof of your mouth and your tongue and everything came up. And this was our Saturday night. You right. know? Well, right, time to go for panzerotti and then some water ice. And then we call it a night, you know? And is where is there ever a pursuit of chicks in there? Is there ever like... Oh, yeah, get- of course. There's the dream of the pursuit. <laughs> That's it. Just yeah. the dream. And the of illusion. course, if you saw, you know, you saw some girls going in an opposite car, you spent the rest of the night trying to catch up with where those girls were of course right. inevitably like you'd be going south while they'd be going north and you'd be going north and you might see them once again which is why we fell in love with american graffiti because you remember that movie they were chasing this girl in a thunderbird mm-hmm. the entire movie she was this magical girl that's richard dreyfus has always said well that was our life you know there's always some girl that just got away in a car and right. asked us so we were we cruised around and we fell into this 50s music and we became pretty good and we would what did play, you play what's your I instrument piano okay and sang, and so did everybody in the band. And we were called the Lucky Tiger Grease Stick Band because a Lucky Tiger Grease Stick is uh, – in those days when you had got your crew cuts, but they left some hair up in the front. And uh-huh. then they would take this thing called a Lucky Tiger Grease Stick and it would on, – right on the front. And if you put it into your hair, it would just freeze like that, like a hurricane could blow and your hair wouldn't move. This is a wall of sticking just, wall just in the front, like bangs sticking yeah. straight up. You remember up. those old crew cuts yeah, yeah, where yeah. everything was shaved except that little thing up front. And you used the Lucky Tiger grease stick to do it, so that was our band. That's what we used to grease our hair back. Okay. And we used to go to these gigs, you know, like uh, the old – I was the youngest kid in the band. The older kids had cars. And we would pull into like a McDonald's or something, go into the bathroom with all our stuff and come out. We'd go in like teenagers of the early 70s and we'd come out. Like 1958, with our hair <laughs> greased back and and sunglasses, and you know, just kind of looking up, hey man. <laughs> and did and, you li- did you are you living it or is it just on stage or is it is it, are, a little bit of living it, you know? You so, know. Hey, over there, yeah, Oh my god, do you even watch Sean and I at that point when it's on weekly or are they sellouts? Uh, but that point, no, they were still they were still the kids from Columbia. Sean and I began as like a bunch of Columbia kids uh-huh. yeah, as a band, so they were just still on the rise. They hadn't sold out yet. Right, yeah, Bowser right. wasn't a household name. The household name, yeah. So that's what we did. We did fifties music. Then I went off to college, and uh, our big gig, by the way, we had one breakthrough gig. We were to warm up act for Gabe Kaplan. Remember Gabe? Yeah, Kaplan? yeah. Welcome back, Cotter. Yeah, and it was Welcome Back, Cotter was on. So he was out doing stand-up. He was doing stand-up, and he needed a warm-up band. And uh, we got the gig in North Jersey at Rutgers University. Oh, okay. It was our big breakthrough. We thought, this is how we're going to be discovered or something. And uh, I remember there were eight of us in the band, 
and they stuck us in like a bathroom to dress. And there was one of him, and he got this monstrous dressing room. Right. And we were peeking in. He had all these cold cuts out there. We're going, eh, dude's not going to eat any of that. Come on. We, we stole his cold cuts. That was like our big thing, you know. <laughs> we went and took all his cold cuts. And years later, I ran into Gabe Kaplan. I told him that. He forgave me for that. But I remember we, uh, we finished, and they did that. You know, okay, yeah, that's fine. You get out. And then uh, Gabe Kaplan comes into our, our bathroom, mm. and he goes, hey, does anybody here uh, – uh, know the theme song to Welcome Back Cotter, you know, and I said, well, I'm the piano player. Yeah, I can, I can play that. You know, it's easy. Yeah, I, can you play that? And then I'm going to come out to that. So I'm thinking, this is great. You know, I'm going to go. And I grab my drummer, my lifelong buddy from, I've known since I was two years old. So I said, come out, you play the drums and I'll play the thing. We'll bring out Gabe Kaplan, right? And says, okay, well, little do we know that now the crowd has moved on from us. Right. Okay. We were like, get through, get done with them. And we walk out on stage. What do they see? They see me and him coming back on stage. Right. They think we're getting another dose of that lousy band. <laughs> <laughs> to this day, my friend has never forgiven me. He's psychotic over that thing. <laughs> I've never been booed before in my life. Ooh, get off the stage. We could not sit down fast enough. And I hit those first notes. Dun, 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 dun. And all of a sudden, everything they changed. Ape and they went ape. And I said, thank God, you know, okay. Uh, Say it by Gabe. Yeah. <laughs> Welcome back. Yeah. And then we just skunked off, you know, right. and Gabe started his routine, you know. So that took me. Then I went off to college. I went through there. I lived over in Europe uh, as a performer, believe it or not. I ended up in Greece on an island in the, uh, Crete uh-huh. in this little tiny fishing village where I became the piano player and nightclub singer for this little luxury resort. I was the only person who spoke any English or sang any American. And I honestly think it was so far off the grid. I think I was singing Elvis songs and I think they thought they were originals. You know, like, you know. What year is this? This is uh, 1975. No, 1979. 79. And what what drove you down there in the first place? I was traveling around Europe. Right. Uh, you know, backpacking that whole thing. Ran out of money. Was waiting for money to get wired over by by my folks or friends or something. Had nothing to do. Was stuck in Athens mm. uh, with nothing to do and uh, read a newspaper ad that said wanted piano player for luxury resort. It was it was in the American newspaper. Uh-huh. I went over and answered this ad, and the woman had one question for me. I was the only person who applied for the job. She said, "Do you drink?" I said, "Do I drink? Do you drink? You have drinking problem?" I said, "No, I don't have a drinking problem." Okay. She wrote up a plane ticket right then. In those days, you could do that. And she handed it to me. She said, be a four o'clock plane. Get on the plane. I don't even – I'm in shorts and a T-shirt. I, I jump in a cab. I stop at some Greek department store and grab a suit off the rack. You know, I mean, the guy wanted to pin it up. I said, no time, no time. You know, just grab this thing, jump in the car, get on a plane, fly to Crete. I've never been to Crete before. I changed on the airplane on the plane. Now I'm wearing the suit that I've never worn before, you know, with sneakers on underneath. I get off and I don't speak any Greek. I have a little note that says the address of the place. Cab driver, I show it to him. He goes, okay, 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 mister. Okay, okay, get in the car. I get in the car. We start to drive. We're on the island of Crete. The sun is going down. Never been here before. No idea. We're on this little road. All of a sudden, he takes a sharp left turn and go into the woods. I'm thinking, okay. I'm going to get raped in Crete. Exactly. <laughs> I got the first freaking, you know. Crete is what driver. we call yes. the ass here. Yes, yes American, you raped huh? I show you. <laughs> Take your pants down. <laughs> I mean, I can see. It's true what they say about Greece. <laughs> yeah. That's what I'm thinking. I'm thinking, oh, no, yeah, I should have thought more about this. He pulls in. He stops his car in the middle of the woods. There's this house there. There's a bunch of chickens. Just quacking away chickens. And he gets out. He goes, come, 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 come. This is his house. He's taking me to his house because right. he's got an American in the car. 
I follow him into his house. He starts yelling his wife. His wife goes, oh. And he says, sit down. He wants me to have dinner with him. He's just literally showing you off. Showing off the American that he has in the car. He wants me to sit down and have dinner. I point at my watch. I go, you know, I got to go. Okay, 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 okay. His wife brings a chicken, a whole chicken, a giant watermelon, and two thick things of feta cheese, jumps in the car with us, <laughs> and is feeding me over the front seat. She's feeding me chicken. It's slurping all over my new suit. <laughs> chicken and watermelon and feta cheese and everything. We're driving to this resort. I'm thinking, this is going to be a great story. Yeah, one, yeah, you know, no one doubt. Of kind of thing. So we get to this place. Now it's pitch black. I get out. I, I show the note to someone. Peter Papadopoulos. That's the guy I'm looking for. Peter Papadopoulos, the manager of the hotel. Which is like the Smith of Greece. <laughs> like Joe Smith. I said, are you Peter Papadopoulos? He goes, yeah. He's probably looking at the grease on my suit. I said, I'm the piano player from Athens. There's the piano. Go sit down. Start playing. That's it. It was in a, like in a lounge full of people. It was a Friday night. Tons of people around. Mm. I have no music. I don't have anything. I just sit down. I start playing, you know, Misty, whatever I can think of that's like a lounge thing. He watches me. I see he's drinking. He's drinking. He's watching me for a while, and uh, and uh, he drinks. He keeps drinking. I said, "Man, that guy's drinking a lot." After about an hour, he says, "Okay, come with me." We go down to this taverna. He says uh, he's drinking. Drinking. Turns out it's his birthday. Everybody's buying him drinks, and he has to drink at his birthday. So he is sloshed, and he says to me, uh, "So uh, do you sing?" And I said, "Well, you know, I sing a little bit." So go sing with the band. I go. I don't sing Greek. I go sing with the band if you want this job. Like that. I said. <laughs> Okay. So I skunk up to the band. This guy leans over. He's got a cigarette falling out of his mouth. His name's Dino, the keyboard player. I said, uh, hey, this guy, he wants me to sing with the band. Do you know anything like American? He goes, takes a cigarette. He goes, Elvis Presley. I go, Elvis Presley. Yeah, great, great. It's, uh, uh, blue suede shoes. Blue suede shoes. I said, okay, blue suede shoes. That's great. That's great. He goes, uh, what the, what the, what the, what the, he's pointing at the keys. I said, what key? I said, I don't know, like F. He goes, F. I realize it's not the same alphabet. He goes, do, re, <laughs> mi, fa, so, do, re, mi, fa, so. I so I picked some. So now you got to remember that up to this point, all they've heard in this room is, that's Greek music. Right. right there, okay. The lights are out. The drummer takes his cigarette out of his mouth. They're all, they're, these guys all smoke all day. And uh go, one, two, three, boom. One for the money, like two for the show. Like, the lights in. come on. Everybody <laughs> drops their ouzo, you know. <laughs> They're looking at me. I'm figuring in my mind, I figure, what the hell? I am never freaking going to be here again. Right. I'm just going to let it go. <laughs> and I just do the footballs out Elvis. I mean, the shake and the whole thing, you know. And the place is going nuts. And by the time I finish, I get this, like, standing ovation. <laughs> America! I, yeah, yeah. Go Elvis, you know? And again, I'm thinking some of these people have never seen this before. Right. This is so far away. That they're ahead of the curve thinking, in Greece. Who is this man? Yeah. <laughs> yeah, it's very catchy, this music. So I go down, sit back down at the table when all's done, and the guy goes, I'm hiring you to be my singer and my piano player. And, and you were uh, going down for with just the piano playing job. I wasn't even really going to take the job. Right. I just had nothing to do for a day. And he says, I'll pay you $300 a week cash. And this is 1979. That's, that's American dollars. Right. I was back. I, I flew back the next morning, picked up my crap, came back, and uh, and I was stayed there for seven months. And, and they, I was, you, they gave you a place to live. They gave and all me that a shit. place to live. They gave me a bungalow on the Aegean Sea. All my meals. All I had to do was play an hour's worth of cocktail piano, you know, jazz piano, and then sing these Elvis songs with the band, and I was done. That was it. <sighs> 
What, why did you leave? That's the question. <laughs> That's the dream job. That's the question. And this is what I talk to like the young, my nieces and nephews. I say youth is totally wasted yes. on young people. No experience. why did I ever leave that? What an amazing and gig. And you spend dude. the rest of your life, you know, trying to get back to those kind of places. To approximate know. that. Yeah, exactly. I the level of like, it. the level of output that you have to put into something that you love that much, especially where they're like, hey man, you just come here and be a rock star in private. Right. Be You're a like, rock right. star on an island. Now my dream is to go back there on like the 30th anniversary of it or something and uh and get the job back mm. for a summer not tell anybody where just get the job back for a summer and then maybe i'll write a book about you know what it's like when you're living your dream when you're a kid for because right. now i feel so self-conscious i'm sure singing elvis songs or whatever but i have to pay them probably to let me go well back. i mean you also got to figure now i bet you there are more american tourists who've been right. there and they're like they go, hey man that's just elvis yeah, 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 yeah. <laughs> that's the dude who wrote tuesdays with maury yeah i recognize hell? that guy so what happened to you, pal? Yeah. When so you left there and went where? Came back Came to the back states. To New York was a starving musician in New York. Did that whole thing. So even though you were making the three hundred bucks a week there, you were just like, I gotta go back where. Because the- I felt like I was behind. You know, like I need to start my career. Right. What I was that career? The music, music career at this point. Yeah, and I moved into New York. Did the whole starving artist thing. Played every stinking little club in New York City. You know, formed bands. Fell out of bands. Formed another band. And you know, after a few years of pretty much heavy failure you know i decided to get into writing i just volunteered for a local newspaper they were given out in supermarkets in new york in new york at flushing the queen's tribune that they gave it out and i was living out in queens at the time couldn't afford to live in manhattan right living out in queens and uh, they gave it away in a supermarket in your bag you know every time you go in and it said on there you know if you have free time we could use some extra writers here and i went down there i was like the youngest person by 30 years and I said, I, I have some free time because I just work at nights as a musician. You know, what? And they sent me on a story, my first story. And I had never written anything in my life, anything. And did you have, what were your, like, English grades like when you were in I was school? good. You know, I could read and, you know, I must have had some kind of aptitude. I think music actually is very closely connected to writing. Explain. Well, there's a rhythm and there's a pace to your sentences. You know, one of the things I've always been pretty good at, even from the get go, was, getting you to the next paragraph uh-huh. and you know and even if people don't like my books they usually say well i finished them in no time well that's not an accident i mean <laughs> you know designed. being able to re you know write with a rhythm to your sentences and, and a cadence and a beat and you know kind of come back to themes like you do with a chorus and a song and things like this a lot of it's very close right. relation to it so um they sent me out to this um it was a parking meter uh, hearing on whether they should raise parking meters from a nickel to a dime. And I didn't know anything about journalism, so I went with a pad like I saw in the movies. You mm-hmm. know, I saw all the president's men. <laughs> I interrogated <laughs> you're, you're them. Your Bob Redford. What do you mean you're going to raise it 10 cents? <laughs> Which one of you is deep throat? <laughs> and I wrote a story, you know, like uh, I thought you were supposed to write it. I mean, I had no idea. You know, I said, well, I see what they do in those newspapers. You know, like the first paragraph kind of tells you the main thing. The second paragraph is a little broader. Third paragraph has quotation marks around it. Right. So I did that. And the next week when I went to the supermarket uh, and got my little basket and picked it up, and my story was on the bottom of the front page. And when, you know, when you see your name and a little story, and I still have that story. So you really, paper, you- and I was hooked. You know, I was hooked. I've been in writing ever since. 
Did you like hand out a few in the grocery store? Well, like, have you seen a copy of <laughs> this week? Parking meter story. <laughs> but still. Really blew the lid off of that. From Little Acorns, uh, Great Oaks yeah. Grow. So At the wait. time it was just a little acorn. A very small acorn. But you busted that story wide open. Yes. Um, did you, so you continue at that place or how long do you yeah, do that? I stayed before? there. I worked there for free, which is something that, you know, for young people who ever want to know about getting into something, says, don't, don't worry about what they're going to pay you. Yeah. That was the, that was the smartest thing I ever did was say, Hey, I work here for nothing. Nothing. We'll take you. And yeah. I learned everything at that. Cause you know what? Writing for a newspaper that gets handed out for free is still the same as writing for the New York Times. Yeah, you yeah. still have a deadline. You still have to be factually accurate. Plus, I learned how to lay out the paper, how to sell the ads for the paper, how to make it fit, how to type. So you learned way paper. more than just like, you know, oh, I'm a writer at the paper. You can pretty much put together a paper from scratch. Yeah, the I only difference to. between you guys and the New York Times is price point at that point. You know what I'm saying? <laughs> well, quality. And, yeah, yeah. some <laughs> content stories quality. and whatnot. Yeah. But yeah. you guys were all over the parking meter story. We Where was the New York fucking Sri Lanka time? correspondence. <laughs> I was the only staff writer and there was another guy who was like the publisher and that was it. But, you know, from that, I, I learned how to write, uh, at least journalistically and then, uh, ended up going back to graduate school at Columbia, uh, to pursue that? Of that, to pursue that. And I got a, a master's degree in, uh, in, uh, journalism from Columbia. And wait, 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 the friends and the musician friends and the family, when you're just like, ah, oh, I'm going to go do try journalism now. Is anybody like, what the fuck? What happened to music, man? The music, or the, the are main, you at no, beyond that age? No, at this point? I mean, you know, they in those days they were all just trying to get their own way too, and they didn't really see much of a difference. But the 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 one quintessential line I remember, my dad, you know, who never wanted me to go into music. And I love my dad, so I say this, you know, mm. with all love. Never wanted me to go into music. You're wasting your time in music. You're wasting your time in the music. And uh, but I went in anyhow. And I remember going down to their place in Philadelphia, or whatever. I said, listen, <clears throat> I made a decision. I'm not going to do music anymore. Thank God. I said, I'm going to write. What? <laughs> he, goes, he goes, that's the fire to the frying pan. I always remember that. That's the fire to the frying pan. And I thought, I'm wow, just that's never- awesome. Writers are worse than musicians. Worse than musicians. I'm going to be a child molester. Right. Well, all right. Then. He's know, like, well, you can, that kind of thing you get punished for or you can be cured of. But writing. Right. Writing is And it. music. These are sicknesses. And for years, you know, he just thought I was making the wrong decision. Uh, but one day, I don't know, it was like maybe – Eight or nine years later, I had written a story for an airline magazine and uh, somebody he knew from his company, he worked in a, in a business company, um, read it, saw my name and bought it to him and said, hey, I saw your son wrote this article. You must be very proud. And I remember my dad coming to me and saying, yeah, my, uh, someone bought me this article. I'm very proud of you. You're, You're like going to make I me cry. I just, That's... I reached, that was it, the airline magazine. <laughs> <Yeah>. <laughs> Airline magazine, you know, the Delta Way or right. something like that. And that's when I finally got my dad to uh, approve. So, yeah, but nobody else seemed that they were, you know, whatever you're going to do. And I didn't – listen, Kevin, I didn't have any aspirations, you know. As a musician, all I wanted to do was, was play. Was play. And I didn't want to be a rock star. I wanted to just end up in a studio somewhere. Right. You know, like I, I, I have a friend who, who – he and I have the same philosophy. He said, never wanted to be Dion, just one of the Belmonts, you know. <laughs> right. And that's that's basically it, you know. And, and, and then when I got into writing, I thought, hey, if someone actually pays me to write, I'll consider myself lucky. You know, right. If I can actually eat off of this, I'll be fine. So all this other stuff that came with books and all the rest was way out of – my expectations and then to have, you know, a book like Two Sisters with Maury, whatever, do what it did. Nobody on earth would right. expect that. So 
probably like you and clerks a little bit or whatever. You sort of divorce yourself. It, at some point, it drifts off. It's like the, the those stages of a rocket ship when one just breaks away and floats off. And at one point, they were part of the same ship, but now there's a mo- you've, have you, you seen know. the true the new True Grit the uh, Colin Bowes movie? There's two three moments in the movie. I mean, it's very simple. This all the best filmmaking is, but it's a very simple shot. That communicates almost that same idea as, you know, it's based on the book and, and, and it's not different from the original movie. So it's about the little girl who's, you know, hired Rooster right. Cogburn to kill the man who killed her father. Um, so periodically throughout the movie, they leave something behind, like something that has taken them thus far. There's a shot in the movie where she has to leave a horse behind and right. it's really like they're holding on her looking at the horse and then they're kind of just pulling back from the horse and the horse getting smaller and smaller in the distance. And I, it was a, there's a very distinct feeling of what you just described of like the stages of a rocket that just fall right. off and suddenly you're like, Oh my God. Yeah. That was like three stages ago. Right. Like such an integral part of your existence just Isn't there anymore. flies right. away because your right. existence is completely redefined and yours got redefined a big fucking way. Before that happened, you went to Columbia right? and then graduated. Well, you got right. a like a, and uh, I got masters, a masters or whatever? in journalism, yeah. Um, and so at that, but you're already writing. Why did you feel the need to go educate and get a masters in something you well, were already doing? Well, I was doing? writing for a free giveaway magazine, <laughs> you know, newspaper. I was, I did have some aspirations. Right. <laughs> like, one day they'll charge for the paper that I'm writing for. Right. Uh, and then I, you know, I got into, I fell into sports and, um, at, at Columbia? Yeah, cause I was looking, uh, at first I paid my tuition, I had to pay all my own way, you know, I mean, it was, it wasn't, you know, you didn't I, wasn't come a, I wasn't a silver spoon, no. And so I always was looking for ways to pay my tuition, and, uh, at first I played these dive bars at night, mm-hmm. and, and I remember inviting some of my Columbia, you know, the preppy kids that went there to come down and see me, only these bars were really dive, and this kind of place like, you got paid depending on how many drinks they sold that night. You know, a guy would come over and say, I had a shit night, so I'm not giving you anything. And you, you just have to go home and hope you had a better night the next night. Right. And that meant every, all the drunks had to sing. Like if they wanted to sing, you had to play. And I got, a guy literally, I mean, it sounds like a cliche, but a guy came and said, you know, melancholy, baby. You know, I said, okay. And I'll go, hey. And I look at the guy who owns the bar and he's behind the bar and he looks at me and he goes, play, you know, like play. What are you doing? You know, guys buying drinks. So, uh, I start to play it. He goes, that's not it. (laughs) (laughs) Okay, now the drunk is telling me, I'm not playing Melancholy. That's the kind of place it was. And after a while, I couldn't stay up that late. I was, you know, I finished it at four in the morning and I had to be in class at eight and all that. So, Mm -hmm. uh, I saw, I, I looked at the job board or whatever and they had a thing at Sport Magazine. And, uh, I said, well, I, I watched sports when I was a kid. Maybe I can do that. I went down to Sport Magazine and they hired me as like a, you know, to write little, stuff for the front of the magazine and stuff like that and i actually found that sports were a great way a great place to uh exercise your writing muscles because when you think about it although sports gets laughed at in the newspaper business it's often called the you know the toy department of the of the newspaper store why why a, well because they don't take it seriously you know when you're in foreign affairs and politics and business you know and i, I always say yeah and who what section do they go to first with all your you know right to the sport yeah. especially ultimately when i lived in detroit i mean nobody reads the front page i argue to get off of the front page <laughs> right. when they want to put my column they say well this is such a big story we'll put it on front page. no 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 leave me in sports leave me in sports <laughs> people find me in paper. sports no 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 i know it's <laughs> leave me in sports so i found you know and i think most writers are 
tell you the same thing because I was in it for the writing. Mm -hmm. I, I was never in it for the journalism or the reporting. I, I was in it for the writing. I like to create. And you're not even like Joe Sport Guy prior to no. this either. But what I found out was that uh, sports give you everything from a writing perspective. You've got glory. Mm -hmm. You've got agony. You've got, you know, uh, effort. You've got people. You've got race and uh, ethnicity you've got money you've got the evil elements you've got you know i mean they give you a chance to do everything explore everything there's some character in life's play in every form of sports and as long as you take it seriously and write it you you get to express yourself in ways especially in a newspaper that you never can in any other section think about it. all the best writing in newspapers is generally comes out of you know at least creatively comes out of the sports section mm -hmm. and then you start studying as i did and you see that hemingway and Faulkner and Norman Mailer and all these guys did sports early in their career. And you start saying, well, you know, they turned out okay. And so I got into sports and I never left. You know, I sort of fell into it and, and, and never really got out until the whole Tuesday and Mori thing. Happened. You, um, you once gave me a brilliant piece of advice, which was very, very helpful, uh, as I was, uh, heading into, um, hit somebody where I was like, uh, I gotta hang out in a locker room. Or, or something like that. And maybe I should like hang out with the team for a couple months and, and just learn lingo and blah, blah, blah. And you were like, why? And I was like, I, cause I don't, I can't, I've never, I don't play sports. You know what I'm saying? I'm not an athlete. So I don't know if I can write a movie, um, about sports, you know, and, and you were just like, but it's not a movie about sports, just a movie about people right. having to play sports. Um, but they're people and it's everything about them. That's not playing the sport. That's actually the interesting stuff. And I, I was like, "Oh my god, you're yeah, yeah." Right. And that's so probably, suddenly, it cracked the code for probably me. Probably why I hit somebody is going to be a great movie, and and why a lot of people are going to go see it who wouldn't otherwise go to a hockey game or right. anything like that. And and I always thought, to some degree, my ignorance in some of those things about sports was my blessing. And I never bothered to start memorizing who led the league in triples in 1933. First of all, you can always look that up. Right. Secondly, I think your head is only so big. You can only fill so much space in there. And yeah. if you're going to fill it with useless facts or X and O's and all the rest, then you're not going to see the humanity for it. You know? right. and I started to look at sports. I said, well, everybody's looking at the pitcher. What about the outfielder? Everybody's looking at the winner. What about the loser? And I, I started to write stories about the guys from the back of the pack and guys who didn't make it and guys who, you know, uh, little small weirdo sports. One of the most popular things I ever did was I went and did the Iditarod dog sled yeah, race yeah. up in Alaska and spent three weeks there and people fell in love with that series and nobody ever heard of any of those people you know I mean and it wasn't it wasn't a recognizable name in the in the in the bunch right. why write another story about Michael Jordan right. I mean what am I going to say about Michael Jordan first of all he's not going to give me any acts he's going to get the fuck out of here I'm not going to talk to you <laughs> right. uh, secondly what can I say that hasn't been said I mean at some point you do kind of use it up so it's a smart play, man. You went yeah. for like, well, they're not telling these stories. They, everyone's telling the, the obvious the story. Yeah, yeah. I'm going to go to the one over here. And I found, and that's why I said to you what I did. Don't immerse yourself so deeply that then you feel to honor the story you've got to include this little reference and that little reference and make it just like these hockey people because no one's going to go into that movie going, let's see if this is really hockey. Right. Well, they're going to go in and, except maybe a couple players, yes. they're going to go in and <laughs> yeah. they want to be moved. You right. know? That's the thing. At the end of the day, I mean, look, it's a movie, so they have to let authenticity go a little bit. You know, it's like already we're dealing in fantasy. This isn't real. So you have to let uh, your expectation go in terms of like, hey, man, that's not the way it would happen. Hey, uh, the, you call that a fucking – that was not a penalty, blah, 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 any of this shit. 
Um, and just if, if they let go of that just a little bit and concentrate on the human story, yeah, then I think we're fine. Well, if you remember when we met, mm-hmm. you know, to talk about whether, you know, you were nice enough to call me and, and say, uh, hey, I want to see if you give me your blessing to, you know, make a movie out of this, uh, song. Mm-hmm. I never once asked you a hockey question. No. And everyone's just so, you know, uh, explain to me the blue line. Right. You know, I never said anything like that. I, I would have cried. You. If you did, I literally would have cried. I'm too I much wasn't pressure. I'm interested. Too much pressure. <laughs> the blue line. I don't know. Which one? Is it, is it straight? <laughs> where? Where? I wasn't, I didn't care. All I wanted to see was that you, if you were, well, you can tell it better than I can, but I asked you two things mm. after we finally got to know one another and you explained to me why you had that long coat on in July. <laughs> um, and, uh, and the shorts, and, the jorts and, as well. And the shorts and why you had, you had sweat, you told me you had sweating issues and you kept running your fingers through your hair and, <laughs> I said, well, take your coat off. And you said, oh, no, I don't take my coat off. And Because so, you know. <laughs> I've got bigger weight issues yeah, yeah, than sweating yeah, issues. My, my You're like, issues. I think they're, they're combined, Kevin. I think those two are tied together. <laughs> I, didn't, I didn't say anything like that. <laughs> I just know. said, mm-hmm, yeah, waiter. <laughs> give me a drink quick. Uh, but after that and after we talked about it, you remember, I, I only asked you two things. Yeah, the two things you asked, which were I was, I was like, oh, I got this, man. One was like, don't make fun of the sport. Um, hockey has a hard enough time, uh, finding respect and, and legitimacy in the world of sports. They, they don't need another hit. Don't make another movie about how these dudes just punch each other in the face and the loose teeth and all this shit. Like, there's a human story here. Just don't make it a joke. I, I never, I would never in one in my soliloquy about what hockey is yeah. to me. And the other one was like, you gotta shoot it in Detroit. Yeah. And I was like, done, hockey, shoot it in hockey town, done and done. Um, that's it. That's yeah. All I've those, ever asked you. So, uh, yeah, that's, that's, yeah, yeah, it's true, man. You're not the, it's intimidating when you hear a sports writer because you're like, oh shit, I can't talk to a sports writer, man. He'll know that I'm not, he'll smell un, not sports on me, but it, it's. Yeah. I should probably have that reverse. It should probably be more writer, writer sports. slash sports yeah, or whatever yeah. because I don't look at, uh, I, and, and whatever success I've had in sports writing, it's been because of that. The stuff I've done that people have liked the most or been most moved by has, has always been, about um, something that's more universal. Uh, probably the most one of the most popular columns I wrote was about a, a, a heat at the Olympics, mm-hmm. not a final, where there was a 400-meter heat. You know, semi people who don't know what heat is, it's like a semi-semifinal, mm. not even the semifinal. You know, they, they run the, – it's when the guys from Ghana and, and Guyana are in the same race. When they're just trying to eliminate the field, get it down to, you know, the final eight guys who are going to run for the gold medal. Right. So there's no medals. There's no anything. It's just the first uh, – the top four guys advance to the next round. And I happened to be sitting there. The place was half empty. Middle of the day, I was working on something else. And, a, and the gun goes off and around the corner. They start running. I noticed this one guy pulls up. About halfway through, pulls up lame, you know, popped a hamstring or something like that. It happens. Happens in sprinting all the time. Well, he pulls up and he's, and you can see the agony in his face because you realize now this guy's trained his whole life to go to the Olympics. He's done. All right. <sighs> and he's standing in the lane there and he's, 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 and then he drops down to his knees and he starts to cry. And all of a sudden you see this fat guy jumps over the rail and runs onto the field. Nobody stops him because it's, Pre two, pre nine eleven, right. number one, and it's a heat. It's his father. His father runs onto the onto the thing, grabs his son, and puts his puts his son on his feet, like lines him up so his legs are on his legs, and walks him across the finish line. Gets him finished. Now this race has been done forever and a day. Made me cry, dude. And he walks him across the finish line because 
if you don't cross the finish line at the Olympics, you don't get recorded as having participated. Right. They just, you don't, you disappear from the record books. But if you cross the finish line, they put your time, what you were and what you finished, and you forever you're in the books as you participated. Right. And that was this guy's thinking that it's bad enough that my son, you know, is not gonna, is, he's not gonna win, he's not gonna advance, but he has to have been all here. this work. Yeah. All this time has to so have been now, for something. Everyone stands up, they start cheering as this guy goes across. Now, I at that point lost total interest in who was going to win the 400 <laughs> meters. Okay, I couldn't even tell you who the frick was in the 400 meters. Right. I had one thing on my mind was to find that father down in that tunnel, and I ran out and ran down, and all I remember was he was wearing a brown coat or something like that, and 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 got down in that tunnel somehow hooked up with this guy. I mean, you have to barrel through now six different languages. Of guards and nobody wants you to go anywhere you just have to duck under and do it you know because the guy's going to pass and there goes a hundred thousand other people i found him and i grabbed him and he spoke english and uh i said just tell me what was what was going on there and he said i trained my son since he was a boy i taught him when he was a little kid before he could run i put his feet on my feet and uh, that's how i taught him how to run cry, i know but but, but this is the kind of story that's right beautiful yes and i wrote exactly the way he said it was just i wanted him to get across the line you know and they were at that moment i think i began by saying or ended by saying you know at that moment they were the same as they always were when he taught him how to run the son on the don't do this seat. to me Al. don't make me cry in my own house while you're telling this fucking story anyhow the point is no one knew any no one knew the guy's name i can't mm. remember the guy's name now and no one knew a country or anything, but it turned out to be one of those stories that people talked to me about for years. Right. So I learned a great lesson from that is that, you know, if you find something that's universal, such as that, which is trying and failing a father's love, you know, standing with and walking somebody and helping them that last inch, it doesn't matter how much you get the details right or right. whatever. It, what matters is that you speak to people on the language that they understand, which is their heart. And that did. You cannot write um, like that unless you have love in your life. When do you fall in love? When do you uh, meet your you wife? The first time or the, the last time? <laughs> well, let's go for the last, just for safety's okay. sake. <laughs> last time is much safer. Yes, yes. Uh, I met her. Were you? Um, are you in Columbia in at this Detroit. point? No, no, no. I was in Detroit. All right. And well, let's get to Detroit. You left Columbia. You graduated. Left, yeah, you got a master's. Yeah, I got a, got a job down in Florida as a, as a sports writer uh -huh. uh, and worked for a couple years as a sports writer and then got offered a, a gig in Detroit as a columnist. In fact, got offered the same job at the two competing newspapers for the exact same money, the same conditions. Whatever. They must have been colluding with one another. <laughs> I mean, how could that possibly be, right? But uh, I picked the one that I st went to, which is the Detroit Free Press. Mm -hmm. And um, The Freep, as they the call freep, it in town. Yeah, which is the morning paper. And uh, a couple years after I was there, a friend of mine who was a musician uh, tried to fix me up with his cousin mm -hmm. and i said listen i don't like going on blind dates you know he said well i i got a solution to that she plays piano you know i know you're a musician that's how i know it. and she, she sings and she plays piano we'll go see her at her gig you can kind of get to know her from afar she'll come over on the breaks and stuff like that and if you like her then you can ask her i said okay that sounds safe so we go we sit down and this turns out what will ultimately be not my wife, but my wife's older sister, Debbie. It was like that fucking sitcom who for a second. Is, who is a diva, you know, uh, was, I mean, tragically we lost her last year mm. and that's a, a sad story, but, but was a diva of the highest order, but gorgeous and a knockout and talented and terrific in a thousand ways. So she comes over, she meets me, all the rest of it, and she goes back, we're playing. So I'm watching her play and all of a sudden, and, 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 She's one of these people that has no shame, and she grabs a microphone, and she goes, Ladies and gentlemen, 
uh, I'm told we have a celebrity in the house. He's a sports writer. His name is Mitch Album. And you're here like, first of all, I was only there a couple of years. So I barely even knew. It's like, <laughs> like this. And, they go, and I hear his, she goes, and I hear his musician. So let's bring our hands together and call him up. I'm thinking, oh no, you're not going to do this. <laughs> so they go like that. Says, so now I have to get up and go and sit down and play. And I go, I don't really want to play. She says, just sit down and play this, play this song. She opens this music. It's Around Midnight by Thelonious Monk. <laughs> now, if you don't know anything about jazz music, let me just tell you this. Round Midnight has like seven sharps in it. Okay. <laughs> I don't think there are more sharps on the keyboard than you could have. And that's one of the most complicated pieces of music ever known to man. <laughs> And she says, just play it like this, like this. She starts giving me, so I'm, I'm panicking already. I start to play and I'm, and she goes, it goes very faster. Well, round mid, faster, round mid, and now I'm sweating bullets and it goes very, modulate. I said, what? Never mind. She's yelling at me. So by the time that song was over, not only was I covered in sweat, but I skulk back to the table and I say to my friend, no. Freaking <laughs> okay, and he was laughing at it. Well, at that same thing, her sister Janine, who turns out to be my wife, mm-hmm. came in while that was going on. And when I came back to the table, she was sitting there, and she said, "Don't feel bad. She does that to everybody." And I looked at her. I said, "Friend." <laughs> you know? And uh, when we left that night, I said, to, <coughs> "I said to my friend, I said, listen, I'm not interested in the older one. She, <laughs> I could tell that would never go anywhere, but." The young one's pretty, you know, and she was really nice. And he goes, well, I never asked her about you. I got to, you know, and this was in the old-fashioned way of doing things. Right. So he called her and asked her, would it be all right if my friend calls upon you, you know? And she said, okay. And I called her, and we had a first date uh, that started at like 1 in the afternoon and ended at 2 in the morning, and we've been together ever since. Get out of here, really. So you just kind of like, once you once you hooked up for that, hey, let's go out. That was it. Wow. Yeah. And we always with joke. only the common germ of like uh, remember my sister <laughs> being thing? embarrassed by her sister, yes. <laughs> but she probably had a lifetime of that, and and you oh yeah, had that and moment. I was just getting into it. Yes, yeah, I have since had a lifetime of it, but of course now she has uh, kids. Mm. She had a couple of pretty tough marriages and divorces, and the kids with all that bossing around, like modulate, yeah, hurry maybe, up. <laughs> maybe that's <laughs> maybe why. That's Who knows? Probably had something to do. But with. she, but the kids always go. So wait, so Uncle Mitch could have been our dad? You know, I said no, <laughs> it wouldn't dad. have actually worked like that. But uh, you know, it, it worked out for the best. I got it was, as everyone in the family says, you got the right sister. And uh, and she's been my wife ever since. Now, where is this in relation to the Maury book? Hadn't happened yet. No, no. Um, Where do you meet Maury? Where is the I met again? Maury. We met Maury. Now, remember, and Maury. I'm, I'm, I'm sorry that you're going to tell the story for the gazillion oh, time. Oh, all but- right. You know, uh, Maury was, I was very close with Maury uh, at college. Mm-hmm. Uh, he was the first class I took. First class I took. I walked into his classroom. It was an intro to sociology. There were like nine kids in the class. I'm thinking, I'm not taking this freaking, I'm out of here. If I, if I cut it, they'll know I'm not here. I thought the whole thing at college was, you know. Hide. <laughs> yeah, plain yeah, sight. Well, or you can sleep in and not go. So I was actually leaving and he uh, started to call roll. You know, you pre-register and he mm-hmm. had my name. And, you know, one of the problems when your last name begins with A, you're, you're, not, right going, you're not going anywhere, dude. <laughs> right. And, um. He said, uh, Mitchell album. And so I, I was half out, you know, I was going to drop it at the registrar and I was half out the door and I said, oh shit. I slid back in. I raised my hand. I said, here. And he said, is it Mitch or Mitchell? Which do you prefer? And like now for me, I mean, I know that question doesn't mean anything to anybody, but for me, it was like, wow, you know, most people just pick one. That's who go I'm going to be that whole year, you know? So I said, well, actually, Mitch, my friends call me Mitch. So Mitch, he goes, all right, Mitch, it is. And Mitch, I said, yeah. 
He said, I hope one day you'll think of me as your friend. So I'm thinking, well, cutting the classes out of the question. (laughs) 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 And uh, that was sort of the beginning of our relationship. And we really had a terrific relationship. You know, when you go off to college, if you meet a professor or or somebody, you know, uh, an adult who you kind of connect with, they become sort of your first bridge of, hey – I can talk to adults who are not my parents or my parents' friends right. or related to me. I can actually talk to an adult on my own. Yeah, like yeah. he didn't ask, uh, what, oh, don't I know your parents? You know, he just wanted to talk to me and he validated me and made me feel like I it's was like buying an, uh, an alcoholic beverage or a lottery ticket or something. One of those like, moments. I, I can life. do this yes. too. Yeah. Hey, I, I think my voice just got lower. <laughs> <laughs> it's one of those things. And, uh, we had a great relationship, and uh, I mean, I took every class he offered, and I majored in sociology on account of him, and he just became a confidant and like an uncle, really, and then I graduated, and I promised on graduation day that I would stay in touch with him, and he said, make sure you come back, and I will, I will, and then I left, and I never said another word to him for 16 years. I became very, very ambitious, very competitive, very, you know, uh, myopic, and it wasn't that I forgot about him in my head, it just first a year or two passed that I kept saying, I'll go back, I'll go back, I'll see him, I will. And then it started to become embarrassing. So much time had passed that right. I thought if I called him out of the blue, I don't know how to begin that conversation. So I just didn't. And 16 years went by and I never even made a phone call to him. Right. And then one night I happened to be watching TV and uh, the Nightline program comes on and there he is talking to Ted Koppel about what it's like to die from Lou Gehrig's disease. And I didn't even know he was sick. I didn't, and he's talking about how he only has a few months left to live and he was preparing for his death and all that. So, you know, you're loaded with guilt and what do I do? And, you know, I said, well, you better make a phone call and you owe him at least that. And so I called him out of the blue. And, uh, when I was back in college, I used to call Maury coach. You know, I don't know why it was like some affectation. You know, I coach and I had forgotten about it for years. So I dial his number. It's, it's listed. Phone rings, answers the phone, and I say, uh, hello, Professor Schwartz. I don't even call him Maury. I say, Professor Schwartz, my name is Mitch Album. I don't, I was a student of yours in the seventies. I don't know if you remember me. And the first thing he said to me after 16 years of total silence was, how come you didn't call me coach? You oh. know, so by that point I was hooked, you know, right, I was going right. to have to go see him. And, right. and uh, I went to see him and I thought I'd just go see him once, you know, and, I was so impressed with how he, his attitude about life. And he just intersected me at a time when I was kind of like spinning my wheels, but you know, okay, is this all there is? I'm busy, but I, you know, I've made money and I've had some success. But on the other hand, I don't really feel like I'm anywhere, you know, except busy. Right. And here he was dying and he had this whole other attitude about what matters and what doesn't. And by the time I was done seeing him that first uh, visit, I said, you know, he's happier than you are, and he's going to be dead in a few months. And, you know, what's the matter with that picture? And so I started going back. There was no thoughts of a book or anything like that. I just went back for my own sort of, you know, I think I need this kind of thing. And I started flying there every Tuesday uh, to just hang out with him. And uh, about halfway, well, not halfway, but a third of the way through, um, I asked him something about, you know, uh, what he feared the most with his disease. And I thought he would talk about choking to death or, you know, cause he couldn't move. I mean, you had to move his face from side to side. You had to lift him out of a chair, you had to wipe his rear end, uh, you know, after the bathroom. I and mean, he couldn't do anything except his mind was perfectly intact. That's what ALS is, you know? So, and he was able to speak. A lot of ALS patients aren't, but he was. So he was in every way, shape and form, 
interested, intelligent, present, you know, had a, this great view of life now. He could express it, except he couldn't move a muscle. Right. You know, you had to wipe tears from, away from him. And he had to blow his nose. You had to blow his nose for him. If he had something stuck in his throat, you had to reach down his throat and pull it up, you know. So all this physical touching and stuff, and yet, you know, he still was this great, loving, intelligent professor. Mm. And he said the thing he feared the most about his death was that he was going to leave his family with all this debt. Right. And I didn't know he was in debt, but it turns out, you know, if you're dying at home for two years, you better have deep pockets. Did you take a bite? Yeah, insurance isn't going to pay for it. Yeah. And so uh, that's when I got the idea, well, maybe I can write a book to help him pay his bills. And I didn't tell him about I was trying because I didn't want to fail and then want to get his hopes up. And I started going around to different publishers, and they all told me no, every one of them. That's why, you know, when you and I have related our stories about yeah. our, when we began and what people told us, you're crazy, you're never going to yeah. be able to. And everybody seems to have a story like that. Everybody told me. No is the, I mean, look, in, in almost every walk of life, no means no. Mm-hmm. Um, and, and that's to be respected. But, uh, when it comes to something ridiculous like making a movie, writing a book, creating music, art, nobody can tell you no. Right. You know what I'm saying? There is no such thing as no. It's just no, not yet. You know, right. it's like, why, don't ask why, ask why not, right. you know? Well, that's a good attitude to have. I, I wasn't so smart, but I was motivated by something better than my own success that was to help this guy. Yeah, yeah, yeah. Honestly, Kevin, Noble. if, if I had just been doing it because I thought it was a good book, I would have quit. Right. I, and that book would have never been written because I had so many people. Because it would have been on your no. schedule. Yeah. Well, it would have been like, okay, so many people. Are saying no to me must not yeah, must be a have, good idea. Yes. Oh, there's that moment. You had yeah. that moment. Yeah. Yeah. But I couldn't allow that to be the case because he needed the money. So instead of being motivated by your ego or how how you feel about yourself, I was doing it for a different reason, and that's probably why that book. Ultimately, we found one publisher willing to do it about three weeks before Maury died, and I went to him and I said, "Listen, you know, uh, you know this." hanging out we've been doing and taping our conversations and everything. He said, yeah. I said, well, I got a publisher once publish a book about it. He says, really? Who? I said, Doubleday. He said, ooh, I heard of them. <laughs> I said, well, not only that, you know, uh, they're going to give us some money. Uh, and I had asked them. I wanted it all up front, which was hard for some of these companies too, but they gave it to us all up front. I said, I want you to take all the money and pay off all your bills, and that way you at least don't have to die the second death that you keep talking about. Right. And, you know, that was a really nice moment for the two of us. And he cried, but that wasn't very unusual. He cried pretty much, you know, at the drop of a tissue. But I always say to people that that was the end of Tuesdays with Maury for me. You know, it hadn't started for anybody else, but for me it was over. Right. I had kind of come full circle. I had done something for somebody else, right. which was a new concept for me back then. And I was trying to pay back this wonderful man who had done so much for me in my life. And at that moment, I finally had achieved it. Right. But I hadn't written. No one else even knew the story. You had lived this entire adventure and Nobody it was kind it. of and done and you could put it into right. words and everyone, the entire world was about to learn the same yeah, lesson. Not you for learned. another 12 months or whatever it was. So for all that, he passed away a couple of weeks after that. Uh-huh. And for all that time, it was just something that existed in my head and in my basement, you know, where I worked on it. And it was supposed to be a 300-page book. That was the contract that I had. But I was so green. I didn't even know how you kept track of pages. So I just wrote the story. And the only thing I ever told myself about Tuesdays with Maury was don't be maudlin. Right. You don't need to overdo it. It was a beautiful little moment. And you don't need to show the world how well you can write about death. Right. Just when in doubt, 
simplify. When in doubt, cut it in half. Trim. Keep it small. So that was my thinking. And you could also rely on him too. I mean, well, what he said resonated so much. What what was I going to say? It was better than that. (laughs) You're like, never mind what the dying man has to say about death. Here's what a living man thinks. Yeah, let me tell you. (laughs) And and a living like thirty year old. (laughs) And so when I finished, I sent the book to the publisher, and they said, "Well, you know, uh, this is only 180 pages." We pan this out, you know, what it would be in a normal book. This is only like 180 pages. You're supposed to give us a 300-page book. And I said, that's all there is. That's the story. And to their credit, they said, yeah, we'll just shrink the book. And and the book's small. You ever notice how small it is? <laughs> make it look like it has some more pages to it. <laughs> that's it. And uh, that turned out to be the smartest thing I did because I think it's very accessible for people. They because read of the page it. count. Yeah, and it, yeah it's, it's when you simple. look at it, you're not like, oh, man, right. it's going to take a few weeks. That you look at Tuesdays more and you go, doable. <laughs> <laughs> you know, right? Yeah. Okay. I don't know if it's good or not, but doable. Yeah. And believe me, Kevin – Nobody thought that was going to be a popular book. They only printed. Nobody at Doubleday. Nobody. No, and there wasn't even like one lone boy somewhere, a wife. Nobody who was just like, this is going to fucking pop. No. In fact, I was worried that it would turn me into a soft sports writer that, that like uh, athletes in locker rooms would say, you know, yeah, you enjoyed that book about that guy dying. You cried at the end. You You're know? that gay guy that likes the dead yeah, guy. Yeah, yeah, <laughs> like, How are you no, doing I- in here? Get away from me. <laughs> I bet that stuff's contagious. <laughs> I don't want to catch what you got. Yeah. Uh, so then, it, and when it first came out, it, well, they only printed 20,000 copies, which for a, a national print run, it's no big deal. They probably got out three quarters of that. And that was it. And it wasn't like I was going to bookstores having big signings. I mean, I couldn't even work my way. Nobody, I was an anomaly. I was a sports writer who wrote this book about the meaning of life and, so the sports people didn't want to talk to me and the meaning of life people didn't want to talk to me because I didn't fit either camp. Right. And, uh, I, I remember I did a, uh, <laughs> I did a radio interview because we're talking on a podcast, but I did a radio interview where I really thought this is, it can't get any worse than this. I went to a rock and roll radio station, like an FM, uh, morning zoo guy. <laughs> How I got booked in, I don't know. I was the only person who would interview was Indianapolis, I think. And, uh, He's got like the lights are off, the black lights are on, and his hair sticking up every which way, and the music's blast. I see he's got my book on the counter, so I think, oh, I don't know, maybe, maybe he read it. He waves me in, so I walk in, the Van Halen is blasting over the thing. He sits down, he most of me sit down, sit down, and uh, he pulls the little fader down. He's working his own board, and he pulls the fader down, and he goes, yeah, folks, that was some Van Halen for you. Now, uh, got a special treat. We got, uh, <clears throat> he holds up the book, he's, Mitch Ablom, and uh, he's written this book called uh, <clears throat> Tuesdays with Maurice. So, Mitch, I guess the obvious first question would be, why Tuesday? <laughs> I said, I, I don't even know what I asked. I don't have an answer now. Right. But I remember thinking, that this is really foolish. Yeah, nobody cares. Nobody cares. <laughs> I'm just going home. Right. Uh, but, you know, a funny thing happened with that book. People read it. What, so what, when did you it. first get a, a sign? When, like the double day goes were sold out, sort of, and they reprinted very ca- cautiously. I think they reprinted in like quantities of eight, you know, because they didn't want to get caught. Right. So okay, print up another eight. You know, what about nine? Not nine. No, no eight. You know. So they kept printing like you know another print. If you ever look at the front of Tuesdays with Maury, it's in like it's two hundred and seventy eighth printing or something. But I think the first hundred <laughs> were eight very- at a time. Yeah. <laughs> And it just caught on. I, you know, there's no other real reason. I did an Oprah Winfrey program, but not as the subject. I did five minutes at the end of her show. Right. 
and uh, that seemed to sort of get it from buzz to you know kind of came on the bottom of the New York Times bestsellers list like 14 or something like that Uh and it just slowly worked its way up and from it was released in August of uh, 1997 and in April of 1998 Mm -hmm. it went to number one on a New York Times bestsellers list now that never happens because usually what eight month crawl yeah usually books come out in the first couple weeks and then they disappear and they drop slowly drop this Went, 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 and in April of, of 1998, it went to the top and it stayed there for four years. What? Yeah. The top, that book stayed at the top of the New York Times bestseller years. list for four years straight? Yeah. Mm-hmm. Jesus Christ. I know, okay, now, uh, you, at this point, you had gone to school to be a writer, so in your head, you're a writer. What kind of feeling is that? What kind of insane feeling of like, I'm, I'm, I'm as widely read as like at that point, Stephen King or something like I, that? I, I, I didn't think of it back then like that at all. I, I, first of all, when I talked about the, that rocket ship sort of mm-hmm. jettisoning, uh, I think that happened with me in that book after a while. Ambition rem- just went away. Well, I just remembered I was a guy in a room with a guy and it was a real small little room. Everything about it was small. And this thing started to become bigger and I started, I started to separate. Like the book kept going and, and, and who I was kind of dropped you were the stage of a stage of the rocket. Yeah. And then the book became this thing. And to the point that people would come up to me and go, Maury, can I ask you a question? I said, I, I, wait. Okay. I was the stupid one. Right. Okay. He was the wise one. I, I don't know the answers. You right. know? I just ask a lot of questions. And that's how I began this. So I never really looked at that book as me. Like, oh, I can write. Right. I looked at it as Maury must have said something. He must have been some sort of oracle to people or whatever. He said something that really resonated. I'm glad I was the guy to write it down. Right. You know, Socrates and Aristotle, but, but <laughs> let's not confuse the two. Right. You know, and, uh, I never confused myself with that. So I always thought, and so did everyone around me, that it was a one hit thing. Right. You know, well, you'll be, and I only had a one book contract for that book with my publisher. I was a free agent. Right. You know, I didn't even have anywhere to go. I didn't even have any contracts with anybody else. And so I didn't write anything for six years. So that was my reaction. I just froze up, you know. I but thought, you were, well, did you continue writing at the, the, the newspaper? Free? Yeah. As, so you continue. That was it. Just, I was, I was a sports writer. I was going like, my book was number one on the New York Times bestsellers list and around the world. And I was at a college football game, you know, like uh, in a locker room talking to a, a naked dis- guy. You felt disconnected from yeah. it. To, yeah. To it to a kind large of degree. went on its own thing. And, and sometimes people said, aren't you? You the guy who wrote that book? I said, yeah. And I'd be there with a pad, and the guy be butt naked, you know, and going, <laughs> "Why are you talking to me?" You know. Right. And didn't there- Maury teach you anything? <laughs> uh, there were a lot of people in the sports writing business who thought I should have gotten out of it, and and maybe even resented me staying in it because there is that thing like, hey, if your lottery ticket came in, don't come back to work. Pat. Yeah, yeah, yeah. Really. There's a lot of that, and and I always felt like, but wh- why should I turn my back? This newspaper was nice enough to hire me when I was a kid, right? I felt I'd be big. Here's where they pay, pay, get dividends on their investment. Yeah, after yeah. All now time. they can say they got me writing, and mm-hmm. and uh, you know why should I big time? And that's how it felt to me. But that's not how people look at it. I don't know if you've encountered anything like that in the film business, where after like after your film hits and you're making money, are you not welcome back at like the little club on Tuesday nights <laughs> where well, everybody's geez, having Mitch, a beer? And I wouldn't know anything about that when your movie hits, kind of thing. What do you mean? <laughs> <laughs> from clerks right on. I mean, yeah, I, I guess there's that. I mean, there's hits and there's hits. I, 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 no, at that point, 
the clerk's origins were so like we were so scrappy so you know we were the sports every sports story you ever wrote right. the underdog so people always root for you in that instance you get one of those then after that, the fucking long, sharp knives come out. Right, right. But, but we you- did. We did enjoy that moment at that at yeah. that point. But at the same time, it didn't cost – didn't seem costly. It was just like, wow, this is really great. Yeah. And like, and you felt smart. Like I knew I was right. But when you were back with the guys who you had hung out with who were all still dreaming about having any film make it at all. But that's the thing. I, I didn't have I, – I, I, I wasn't a guy that hung out with a bunch of other people who wanted to be filmmakers. Yeah, like most of them were just – every time I would try to be like, I want to make a film. They're like, what are you talking talking about you know it was almost <laughs> as if i was like i want to go fly right like on my own power with wings that i create <laughs> sure. um they, they, they it wasn't like i uh, like i spent a little time in film school but um uh, four months and then dropped out so it wasn't like i, did, I didn't live in a world where people were like oh great you fucking yeah. did it what about us you know right. and when i got in the first thing i did was like here's some money go off and do it well sports writing is a little like that world that you said you weren't in everybody is kind of cattle you right. know, you're all stuffed in a sport press box. You all have to clamor down an elevator after the thing's over and push around some guy and stand there. And there are a lot of times as a sports writer where you go, what am I doing this for? And I think there might have been some guys in my business who looked over and saw me there and said, okay, I know that I can ask myself, what am I doing this for? But I can really ask, what the hell are you doing this right. for? And they kind of were resentful of me for being still being there right. like it's like if i had happened to me what you had happened i would have been gone you know and, and, and my presence became like an, an annoyance to them you know <laughs> which is kind of weird but you're like didn't you read it. tuesdays with well, maury well, he has important life lessons to impart well maybe not in a locker room but anyhow that that so it took me six years so six years you were just kind of frozen in yeah, a way of like i don't want to why because you felt like it wasn't like well i can't top this so i might as well a not bit. do anything yeah and Plus, the book was still current in so many ways. Things were still happening. A movie came out of Oprah Winfrey made a movie out of it two mm. years into that run. That Where you got it, played. You, know? you got literally played by yes. somebody in a Hank movie. Azaria. Hank Azaria. Yeah. I tease Hank all the time. He's a nice guy and a friend of mine still. And I said, Hank, one day, old age home for actors, got to the left of you. When I was younger, I played Othello. Got it right here. I was younger, played Hamlet, and you get to sit in the middle. When I was younger, I played Mitch Album. Remember him? You know? And he, he takes it in stride. He, he look, he won an Emmy for it, right? And, uh, you know, and Jack Lemmon won an Emmy for it. And uh, were you around for the shooting Emmy. of it and stuff? Do were you? Uh, you know, did you hang Kevin out and I for went it? one day. Mm-hmm. Um, Oprah went for you and was very nice and, and all the people involved were very nice and they invited me to say, "Oh, we want you to have it around." So I went one day to the set. Towards the beginning. And Jack Lemon was made up to look like Maury. And Hank kind of l- suggested me mm-hmm. the way he looked anyhow. And they had recreated his house. And I walked in. I was so green to movie sets at that point. I walked in while the red light was spinning outside. Mm-hmm. And they went, hold it, stop. Who is that? You know, <laughs> that was my greeting to my, the movie of my book. Who the hell is that? You know, And, and I said, I'm sorry. Oh, oh, it's Mitch Alm. Okay, all right, let's roll it again. Hey, it's it's Maury. And you're like, no, the other one. So, yes, (laughs) he's back. Uh, So I went and I sat there, you know, when I introduced, and Jack Lemmon was very, very nice. And I I have to say, I met him, and he pulled me aside. As soon as I came, he said, can I talk to you? I said, sure. And we went off in a corner for like, you know, 45 minutes, and he asked me all these questions about when Maury first found out that he was sick, how did he react? When Maury first did this, and about... Ten minutes into this conversation, I said to myself, this man's dying. 
not acting, this man's dying. And and I've been around it enough to know that there was something I could just sense he wasn't asking me acting questions. And right. sure enough, right after that movie was wrapped, they announced that his he had cancer and he knew it while he was making that movie. Right. Which is one of the reasons people say that that performance came out the way it did, you know, because he was really all the things was he was saying by, uh, by his, he by was going to say his real life. To right. He was saying himself. And, but I watched them do this scene and he calls, he says, Mitch. And you know, when someone says your name, especially if it's not that common a name, you don't often hear Mitch, you know, right. and he starts saying Mitch and Hank's talking back to him and he's saying, yes, but Mitch, I felt so out of body. So weird watching that right. that I never went back. I left that day and never went back. It just, Did, it so when you when you crazy. left, it, it, it kind of stuck with you uh, for the rest of the day and whatnot, and, and the and the rest of the time that they were shooting. I just said I I am not comfortable reliving this and wa- watching this relived in front of me. Yeah, you know? yeah, yeah. Because uh, it really looked. I mean, he made him look. They, they, they really suggested Maury, and he talked a little like him, and. It just is too odd to see yourself meta, portrayed. as they say. You, yeah, you had a beyond meta moment, yeah, where yeah. you're standing there watching something that you lived yeah. not too long before. And, and I like movie sets; they're okay. I've been to other ones, and then they've made other movies in my books, and I go and I hang out. But when it's you, someone's playing this one was you, different, yeah. very weird. So I only went one day, and uh, then when they won their Emmys, I remember I called Jack Lemmon when he was nominated, and. Uh, I was teasing him. I congratulated him. And I said, now remember, when you win, because you're going to win. And he, he laughed. And I said, don't forget the writer. Because they always forget the writer. They start thanking their friends. And then the music starts playing. And then they start quickly, quickly, quickly. They get to the agent. And then, then they end up apologizing to the writer later. So don't forget the writer. And I was just bullshitting with him. I was just kidding him. He goes, okay, okay, okay. Well, we went. We were away when the Emmys were on. We, we, we never saw them. I don't know. We were on vacation somewhere. But uh, – we came back and I found out that they had all won. The movie won and uh, Hank won and Jack. And somebody gave me a VHS tape, of course, in those days. Right. And I watched it and he got up there and he and after the applause died down, the first thing out of his mouth, he says, first I want to thank the writer, Mitch Alvin, because he, he teased me that I would forget the writer. Now, this was like three or four months after we'd had that conversation. Right. And I'm just one guy on a phone on a day that everybody's calling to congratulate him. And he remembered that. That's class. And, uh, I, yeah, I've never forgotten that. I've told his his son that um, Chris is uh, that that really that really stayed with me, and it's one of those things that taught me that you know not all actors are what you think right. actors are. Right. You know? Well, there's exceptions to all those rules. Yeah. Um, okay, so that book, uh, it, they you never even got a penny from the book. That's the thing we don't really uh, we didn't talk about well, the advance and everything right. else. The advance, and then well, then it started making a lot more money. Yeah, yeah, right. So I went to the family and I said, "Listen, I didn't uh, count on this. <laughs> <Yeah>. <laughs> so why don't you just take?" All this money. Right. And uh, they said, well, listen, we really have enough. And I said, well, then what do you want to do? And, and they said, well, why don't we take half? You know, we're split in half. And so they took half the money mm. and we formed a foundation. And out of the other half, I put money into that foundation and I took, you know, what was left. After. Right, all right. So, uh, yeah, it was, it was way beyond what anybody would think, but... You know, he did pay his bills. Yeah. It's, it's actually done a lot of good. I formed a, a, a charitable foundation called the Tuesdays Tuesdays Foundation, and it's done. It's 
founded a lot of other charities. So speaking sort of, of charity, on. excellent segue. I love sitting down, uh, down with you. We're going to do it again because you are a fucking master, dude. It's so I could just sit here and watch you oh, fucking we're just work. Talk, we're just telling the same stories we always tell. I know, around, I you know. know, but let's be fair. Yeah, full disclosure, tell these cats because some cats might never know you do radio all the time. Like I you do, have a radio show. Yeah. It's, this is I've been in your this place. Is, this is better than my radio show. <laughs> no, no. My radio show is just a, a slam bang kind of thing in Detroit. It's nothing special. It's just us talking on the radio. But Detroit's the kind of town where uh, I always say you get frequent flyer miles for having been there. You know, like the longer you stay, unlike unlike airlines where the long more you fly, you get. But in Detroit, the less you leave, mm -hmm. the more popular you are. And I've been there a long time now. I, I went to, I, I had a Coney Island hot yeah. dog with you. They just call them Coney Island. Yeah, Coney's. Uh, we went and had some Coney's. And, I, you know, I look, I, I I live in a world where if I go to the, the mall or a comic book store, hey, hey, you're that clerk's guy yeah. and shit. So I, I'm familiar with that. And I've known people like Affleck and see how they can't move around the world. Walking around Detroit with you is like walking around with the mayor of Detroit because everyone's just like, hey, Mitch. Yeah. And people like literally talk about things written or talk about charity work you're doing or like you are, you're, you're the, you're the most recognizable guy in town. Everybody knows you. You're the well, Mitchell kid. You're like Dennis the Menace. It's a small town and, uh, and I've been there for a long time. And so. And your hometown hero at this point, even though you weren't born there, they well, claim you was you, there. You become a bit of a hero in Detroit if you stay. You mm -hmm. know, uh, the first letter I ever got as a Detroit sports writer for the Detroit Free Press came before I ever wrote a column. In 1985, it was there waiting for me when I got there. They had announced in the paper I was coming. They ran a little story, a picture of me, whatever. I got there. It was a letter in my box. I'm thinking, how could anybody write to me yet? I haven't written anything. And it was a letter from like some nice older woman or whatever. And she said, I read the story about your coming. Welcome to Detroit. So glad to have you. Uh, sounds like you're very qualified, a very talented writer, whatever. I know you won't stay because none of the good ones do. But while you're here, we hope you enjoy it. You know what a what a nice welcome. But I thought what a what a sentiment to feel like your your town isn't worth staying in. Uh, we know you won't stay. Right. None of the good ones do. You know. So that whole thing about passing through, and there have been a lot of people who have passed through Detroit, TV anchors and, and, and musicians and all the rest, who, you know, they make their stop and then they move on. Right. And they use Detroit as a stepping stone. And most people in Detroit get that and they go, well, of course, you know, why would they stay here? Because this is an inferiority complex that goes on. But when you stay and then you do things like I do, which is say, I'm proud to be here. I'm proud of this city. What is the matter with everybody here? You know, I came from someplace else and I willfully stay here. Right. Why, what's your problem? They go, uh, yeah, yeah, we can be proud. So I have a little. Maury is right, everybody. <laughs> You're yeah. like, I'm not Maury. <laughs> <laughs> He's back. Uh, so that's, I do this radio show which I think is probably only on the air because I've been around for so long they don't know how to get rid of me. But it does give us a chance to talk to people like you, whatever, and you do get used to being on a microphone. Oh, yeah. You got, and, and all the, you've done a gazillion interviews. It's always refreshing to sit down with somebody who's just like a total pro, like you're a ninja. But nobody ever asks me anything. I'm always having to think of the question. So this is really, no, I would me. just imagine like when you have to sit down and do press and talk to about the, they, oh, on the book stuff. Yeah. But not on, uh, not on my radio program. My radio program. I'm doing what you're doing. You know, I'm right, right. You get, yeah, that's been turned You've got around. me uncomfortable here. I feel like a certain <laughs> amount of time has passed and I haven't asked you a question yet. I need no. to. 
my mind is going, pose a question to Kevin right now. <laughs> Stop talking about Greece. Who gives a shit? Ask Kevin a question. It's funny, man. When people who, it's his podcast. who are normally in charge, uh, kind of like, Hey, man, let's talk to you. They're suddenly like, no, 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 no I've, I've we've no. got a, this is not the way it goes. Uh. No, well, you're but, really good at it, though. You're a great conversation. I just love stories. Like when you come on, dude, you going into that story about that fucking track. Like I was literally, I was about to fucking cry when you oh. tell the story about the dude on the track and his father. And mm-hmm. like that's, I love great storytelling. That's great story. Well, that's well, probably why we're friends. I mean, there's there's something. I, I think the story is the oldest form of communication anyhow you know cavemen when they were grunting must have still been telling some kind of stories like something just happened to me over there yeah yeah (laughs) (laughs) and the guy said what (laughs) no and that's where language came from the need to describe to tell the story (laughs) you know i'm i've got to find a word for rock (laughs) how about rock (laughs) (laughs) uh so i i think people who tell stories delight in other people who tell stories you Mm. know and uh you know, I have become a great, uh, I don't want to say fan of yours. I've become a, f- a fan of, of you, not your work. Yeah, I mean, yeah, your yeah. work is your work and your work's great. But I like you, you know, and you become, I hate to say this over a microphone, but you know, I consider <laughs> you a, a new friend. And you know, when you get older in life, you don't make that many friends. New, no, you're you know? absolutely right about that. Uh, and I generally have that philosophy of I'm too old to be breaking in new people. You know? Yeah, yeah. <laughs> it's yeah. My approach. No new friends, yeah, no new right, people. <laughs> right. Like I'm going back to like my old neighborhood and finding some old fourth grade friends that I haven't talked to in a while just because I know I can trust them. <laughs> right. Uh, Closed so, ranks you know, a while ago. We have that in common and uh, so I'm happy to do it. It and I'm really looking forward to you know working with you on hit somebody and I I really that was a good decision when I said yes to you and I left I said I hope I didn't do the wrong thing here he does wear that long coat that's kind of odd <laughs> and plus we took- you forget the other thing that you did yes I don't know if I've ever discussed this with you but when we left the hotel you said well let's go get something to eat. And I said, okay. So we left the hotel where you were staying and we walked, we took a right, we walked down a path and we ended up by the East River. Yeah, yeah, and that place. Standing by the river. No, we ended up by the river. And then you looked around and you kind of looked left or right. And I said, what's the matter? You said, I'm a a little turned around. I'm kind of lost. I said, well, where's the restaurant? And you said, in the hotel. (laughs) And I'm saying to myself, but we left the hotel. Oh, because you can't get into it from we the We walked side. about two blocks away from the hotel. Right. Okay. <laughs> yeah, this guy wants to make a movie of your story. Sure, yeah, that's fine. It was, to be so. fair, it was uh, the Rich Carlton. No, no, don't Battery try to Park. explain it. I got to clear it up. I lived on the condo side. And there was a hotel side, and the hotel side had the restaurant. So we met on the on the condo side, and then went to the. It, it was. It you was, took me to the East River, <laughs> Kevin. Where did you think like, there was a restaurant like submerged in the water? We oh, eventually yeah. remember when we went back and we went to the restaurant with Malcolm. Yeah, that was a different place. Yeah, yeah, that was kind of on the yeah, water sure, too. Sure, sure. <laughs> I was Go looking ahead, for a view. Just try to weasel out of it. It's fine. We uh, we there was the, my favorite story though about us going out. Like that was the. We, when we met and talked the first time, we were still in pre on cop out, or had we started shooting yet? I think we'd started you, shooting. You were just beginning your cop. And out then we thing. sat down again, like the next trip, because you yeah. did regular, yeah, you I do regular in trips in New York the, for for the ESPN, ESPN yeah. thing. Yeah. Mm-hmm. So um, we met that first time, and we had only talked by email, and and um, I like I, I I wanted to find out um, who controlled hit somebody. Right. Which was a song that, uh, you had written, um, with Warren, uh, Zeman. Yeah. And, you know, Warren's past and whatnot. So 
my lawyer was like, I believe it's Mitch Album. And I said, okay, Tuesdays with Maury Mitch Album? I said, yeah. I was like, okay. So we got in touch and did the initial, like, is there's an interest here from our client, blah, blah, blah. And once we started talking, um, it, there was the whole kind of, well, I'd like to come out and sit down with you. I don't want to just give away anything I write without meeting the right. guy. And I said, yeah, great. Come on out. So we met that first time month, I guess maybe three, four weeks, maybe a month later. Cause we were toward the end of the shoot at this point. You came back out and you were back in New York and you were like, let's sit down again. Cause I was going to be leaving soon. Right. We were done shooting in New York. So great. So you came over, you were coming over, but we had wrapped that day and got home from work. And Malcolm, my friend Malcolm Anger mags out with me all the time. Um, at the front desk, the guy was like, somebody left a cake for you guys. And we were like, really? And looked at his white box, came look bakery cake or something like that. And in my head, I thought it was for, uh, Jen's mom was staying with us, Gail, and she'd had her knees, both of her knees done in New York. So she'd been like laid up for almost a month. And we thought this was a kind of get well cake from, from Jason it was sent from a friend of mine, Jason and Jordan, his wife. So, um, they were gone. Gail and, and Byron were gone. Jen and Guy was the only one left at the apartment. And then once you we wrapped, the cake. me and the cake and Malcolm. So Malcolm's like, who's never a sweets guy. Malcolm's like, what is it? Open it up. Let's look. And it was a red velvet cake. And he's like, can I have a piece? And he doesn't normally eat sugar and stuff. But I was like, yeah, man, might as well. I mean, it was for Gail, but she ain't going right. to be here. We might as well eat it. He had a huge fucking piece of cake. I had a thinner piece of cake. Cause while I was cutting the cake, I was like, fuck, dude, we can't eat. And he's like, why? And I was like, Mitch album's coming. He's like, what? And I was like, yeah, Mitch is coming. You want to eat with us? And he was like, I mean, yeah, I guess. I was like, all right, well, don't eat too much fucking cake. He eats a big piece of cake. I eat a smaller piece of cake. I'm a stoner. I smoke a joint anyway. Mitch comes and we're like, hey, man, let's go out and eat. So I'm a stoner, but I'm not a, you know, I'm a working stoner, right. functional stoner. Functional. <laughs> yes. So, you know, for me, I never get stoned, but, you know, I'm just a mellow THC body. Uh, Malcolm, on the other hand, um, not as well practiced as I am at this point, doesn't smoke nearly as much as I do. Um, he had had like a hit of a joint before we went. We're sitting at the dinner table and, and it's this lovely little restaurant right on the water. You could see on bat in Battery Park, you could see the Statue of Liberty. Um, they do Italian food. I forget the name of the place. Great place. You and I are chit chatting the whole time. The whole time Malcolm is shifting and, looking around like a dog for a squirrel and just all over the place in this weird way. And it looking, he looked strange. And the only thing I could figure was all that sugar from the cake. Right. He never eats sugar. He must be like affected. Malcolm's a big dude like me, yeah. but he's big for eating like cheese and pasta, not like sweets. So I was like, wow, he's having a weird reaction to fucking sugar. And at one point I think he went to the bathroom. I was like, what's the matter with you? And he's like, I don't, I feel fucking weird, man. I feel so strange. I was like, maybe that sugar is something in that cake. So I looked at my phone as we're leaving. You came back. We head back to the hotel. And I look at my phone and I got a text from Jordan, who's Jay's wife. And, uh, and, and the text just simply said, weed cake. And I was like, Oh my God. <laughs> like there was, what is the weed cake? What is this all about? So I'm, I put it together in my head. I was like, Oh, they sent that wasn't for Gail. They sent it to me. My birthday just passed. It was a weed cake for my birthday. But we didn't know. Oh, and I was like, number one, thank God a kid wasn't around. Because right. I would have been like, you want really? a piece yeah, of cake? Yeah. Have some more. <laughs> totally. Isn't it great? Don't you love dad? Dad loves you. You know, um, <laughs> let's <laughs> be Malcolm. honest with each other. Malcolm had no fucking clue. <laughs> and Malcolm, I go, um, I go, Malcolm, uh, that, I showed him the text. I just hand him the phone and show him the text. And he goes, 
son of a bitch poisoned us. He poisoned <laughs> us when I was meeting Mitch Album. I feel like an asshole. And I was like, it's fine. I think you passed. I think you passed. He was actually quite, he was fine. He was gregarious, he ate chatty. A lot, you know. <laughs> he did kind of put <laughs> Seemed somewhat hungry. Yeah. Um, all right, wait, let's do some good. You, um, have faith, uh, Haiti. Yeah. Is a charity we raised a little money for, yeah, uh, recently with so the Red much. State, uh, poster auctions we do. Um, uh, we raised a, a bit for it. Let's talk about the organization because this is what we would love to, after all this storytelling is free, but you know, if you liked what you just heard, yes, you, you might want to reach out and, and help in this cause, which is like, look, so many times people hit you up for money for this, that, or the other thing. It's a drop in a bucket in a well that will never get filled. And you go, what difference can I make? This is one of those rare fucking differences where a couple pennies makes a world of difference. Tell them what you're working on. Well, uh, I went down to Haiti uh, after the earthquake, which was about a year ago now. Uh, just a couple weeks after, there was a report about this orphanage that had been started by a Detroit pastor. And the report was that it had been destroyed and all the kids were dead. Mm-hmm. So it made the news because, you know, this pastor was grieving and he couldn't get word and anything like that. And then... The following day, word came out that it was, the report was erroneous that the, the place had not been destroyed. It was a building next door to it had been destroyed, but the orphanage was spared miraculously. So that got it even more attention a little bit. And I became intrigued by it. And, and, uh, the guy didn't have a way to get down. And so I helped him get down. I said, listen, I want to come with you. I want to see what's going on down there. So I went down. Mm. And I discovered, you know, I mean, I've been around the world and I've been in a lot of impoverished places, but I've never seen anything like that. That was as close to hell on earth as I've ever, ever seen. I mean, you really saw people naked in the streets under blankets or little pieces of tin, people missing arms, legs, babies eating uh, cabbage rinds and right next to them a giant like wild boar that would be licking water from the same muddy pond that they were drinking from. So you knew whatever disease this pig had was going right to these kids. Literally, if you pulled up in a car and you had a a button-down shirt on, women would come running up to you with their kids and ask you to take their children. Just take my child. You know, I'd never, I'd never had anything like that in my life. Just to save giving away because they knew it was hopeless. What was going to happen? I mean, the city was in ruins, just rubble everywhere. Nobody would sleep inside. Nobody. Imagine a place where nobody's inside a window. Every building you look at, you look for a window or some sign of life. Nothing. There's nothing inside. The whole country was on the street or in the street. Why? Because they were afraid it was going to happen again. They were afraid it was going to happen again. Plus, pretty much every structure had either fallen down or was compromised. Right. You know, and piles and piles and mountains of just rubble, dirt, wherever you went, traffic so snarled from all these rocks and things in the middle of the road that it would take you maybe three hours to get four blocks. I mean, you could easily walk faster than you can ride. And in the middle of this is this little orphanage that's walled off. And the kids, when, when we when we pulled in there, I got out of the truck and I'm looking around at this place and it's desolate, you know, and my arms are by my side. And all of a sudden I feel something in my hands. I look down and there's two kids that are so small. I barely, I missed them. They, each one has one of my hands. Never met me before. Never saw it. They just grab my hands and I look down. They're both smiling up at me and they start walking me around. And I don't know, fr- probably right from that moment, I was probably hooked. Right. But one trip led to another and another led to another. And I ended up taking five trips down there last year. And each time I would bring more people with me. Uh, and I knew in Detroit we had a lot of plumbers and contractors and roofers and guys who were good with their hands that were out of work. So I put out a sort of call in Detroit. I said, look, this is, place has got a Detroit connection. If you're not working anyhow, recession that we have and all, do you want to come down with me? You can make a lot of good. 
And over the course of those five visits, we took them from literally holes in the ground where they would shit and piss. I mean, that was it, was a hole in the ground. And I'm not just talking about three and four and five-year-olds. I'm talking about kids all the way up to 20, imagine 20, 22-year-old boys and girls having to, having to get naked in front of one another over a little hole in the dirt. Right. No toilets, no showers. A shower was just a bucket of water that they would pour over the top of their head and, and they had to bathe in front of one another because there was no privacy or anything like right. that. Their kitchen, they didn't have. I mean, their kitchen consisted of, of a big bowl where they cooked rice and beans. And, and every kid got one cup of rice and one cup of beans in the morning and one cup of rice and one cup of beans in the evening. And that was it. So when you would have a conversation with these kids, which I, I had high school French and, you know, I, I can, I can get by in it. And, and, and these kids actually speak English because they were taught by a lot of Detroiters. Mm-hmm. Uh, I would say, did you ever eat a steak? No. Did you ever eat a hamburger? No. Did you ever eat ice cream? No. Did you ever eat a, Birthday cake. No, I mean, imagine all the things that you and I take for granted. So over time, over those five visits, we built real toilets and put them in. They didn't even know what they were when we first put them in. We had to teach them how to flush a toilet and everything. Mm-hmm. We built showers. I remember we put, took this seven-year-old kid and put him in. He was our ceremonious first shower. And I said, okay, you start. You do the shower. He didn't know what to do. I said, that handle there, you turn that Prior handle. Prior to the earthquake, this it was still like the, it's oh, oh, just yeah. poor. Oh, yeah, just p- impoverished. Right. Yeah. And, uh, and, and so he turns the handle and water starts coming down and it's like a ride, you know, like all the kids <laughs> jumped in and they started singing. It was like something out of, you know, Serafina, you know, <laughs> just singing back and forth and the water's coming down. And these little moments, you just fall in love with these kids. So to make this long story short, and I don't want to overdo it, but, but, uh, over time and our coming down there, I, I, I came to realize that the guy who started this is 84 years old and they don't have any money. Mm. They're out of money, and he was raising it and running it. And the reason, one of the reasons, was so impoverished because they, you know, they they were using five hundred dollars a month to take care of nearly a hundred kids. Can you imagine that? Ugh. And that's in every way, shape, and form, everything for five hundred dollars a month. So he admitted to me that they were basically done. And I said, "Listen, I'll take it over if you don't mind." When it, when you say done, what happens in that well, instance? Like he would have, they'd all have to go. You know, they'd have to find some other place to live. And the problem with that in Haiti right now is there's no place to live. Right. Kids are coming in, not out. Right. And so all of a sudden you put these kids out and, you know, this is the only home that they've known. So I said, um, you know, I looked at the finances of it and I looked at what it would take to run it and I talked to some people and the long and short of it is I said, I'll take it over, you know, and uh, I'll operate and I'll raise the money. And uh, we've kind of figured out that on uh, about $80,000 a year, we could not only uh, feed the kids three meals a day, mm-hmm. which they've never had before. I mean, when I told them that last week, I was down there. I said, you're going to get three meals a day in the new year. Three. You know, <laughs> like they thought that they heard the wrong number. Three. They were holding up their fingers at three. Like, you know, he didn't say three. He said, he must have a bad accent or something. The three must be two in English. I said, no, three meals a day. And uh, we're bringing doctors and everybody's going to get charted and all the kids are going to have blood tests for the first time because there are kids there who are six years old who are no taller than a three-year-old just because of what they've been eating their whole lives. I mean, they, you can't grow on rice and beans. You right. know? And and uh, we're building a school on the premises of, of the grounds. So we're going to teach the kids right there in English and in French from age three on. They're going to get a full-out war education. And we can do it all because what I say about Haiti is – you can't save that country. It's lost. It's fucking lost. What do you mean? You can't. It's too corrupt. It, it has a history of, of corruption that is so endemic to that country that if you try to save it from the top down, 
you'll just be frustrated. And that's why a lot of these Red Cross efforts and a lot of this money that was raised just went off, disappeared. Money got taken. Food got taken. And, and people said, why are they still? It's a year now. It's a year after the earthquake. Why are they still suffering? What's the matter? We were, you know how much money we were? A billion right. dollars we gave them? When you have a corrupt government like that where they literally come out in the streets and start firing bullets up in the air if you don't vote for their candidate, which has been going on in the, in the elections that have been going on in the last couple of weeks, you understand why. So you can't save the whole country, but you can save a piece of it. Yeah. And if you pick your little piece and everybody sort of picks a piece, you're going to be a lot more effective than trying to do it macro, yeah. you know, micro versus macro. So we have this piece. And we can make that much of a difference in this 100 kids' lives down there. And you were kind enough when you heard this to uh, auction off a poster of Red State and match it, which you really didn't have to do, Kevin. Uh, Thank you for that. And the more we tell people about it, the more they want to get involved. And I have a thing. This is not my first charity. I I have a, a few other ones. And my philosophy is life has been good enough to me that... I take care of all expenses involved with charities or things like that. So no one who ever gives me a dollar for charity ever has to worry about it going to a salary mm. for an administrator or a paper clip or air conditioning or some other bill or a nice office or a poster on the wall. Nothing. We, we're totally transparent. Every dollar that comes in goes right to either feeding those kids or building a shower or getting a school teacher or whatever the case may be. So I think, you know, we have a chance there to make a real difference in these kids' lives and I leave I don't know when people will hear this, but uh, but I'm about to leave um, on two days from now, mm. and I'm taking 25 people down with me uh, for the week, and there'll be doctors and and teachers for the first time, and we're going to finish the school building and uh, and hopefully you know get things going now that we're operating it. And the name of the mission is called the Have Faith Haiti Mission. I wrote a book called Have a Little Faith, and it's sort of tied in a little to that. And uh, plus, these kids, I don't know how. I mean. If anybody had a right to sort of look at God and go, you must be kidding. You, right. know, you want us to believe in you or you look around at this place. And they're not like that. They are some of the most faithful from the purest kind of sense. And I'll say to them, why are you praying? They pray every night in beautiful song. And I say, why are you praying? You have nothing. And they say, we're alive and everyone else is dead and we, we lived, you know, so there must be a reason we have to say thank you for that. You know, Holy that's how shit. they look at the, uh, the earthquake, you know. So on the one-year anniversary of the earthquake, which is next week, mm. um, we're going back down there and, um, you know, hoping to make some kind of difference. I, I don't say this in any way like, uh, isn't this wonderful what we're doing or whatever. I, I feel always a little bit funny talking about charity work because I was raised to think that the highest form of charity is what you do with your mouth shut, you right. know, and, and, and it's easy. You know, I watch these athletes in sports who have an entourage of cameras following them into one hotel room. And I've been with them on some of these trips, and they walk in, hey, little fella, how you doing? You know, they take their jersey off, and they give it to him, and everyone zooms in, and Kevin shakes a hand, they do a high five. And as soon as the camera's off, guy's on his cell phone or he's on his Blackberry, and he's walking out the door. Come on, mm-hmm. you know? That's not what charity's supposed to be about. It's supposed to be from your heart. But I need help. Yeah, and I I can't do this silently. Nickels know, and dimes, man, they all add up. And and so, where can they send? Where can they uh, have faith? Haiti dot org is the easiest way to do it. And it's, there's like it, a PayPal or it's a, right on there. They can do it via phone. They can do it via credit card. They can do it via check. They can do it in the snail mail. Any which way, you know, it's all right there. It's just called Have Faith Haiti dot org. And if they forget that, just remember my name and go to my website and it'll take, take you to it. Mitchalbum.com. The, um, and, and are you, are you doing a like running tally? Like we're this much closer to our 80 for the year or something like that? 
Uh, that would make it easy. I think it's much easier for everybody to be like, "Fuck, we did it!" If yeah, if, if they yeah. Can. Well, we'll we'll put it up on the web and keep track of where we are. Yeah, uh, for sure. And uh, you know, I I don't I haven't I haven't checked in lately, but uh, <laughs> you know, I I believe we'll get it. But you can kind of figure out. You know, eighty thousand isn't that much if everybody gives. Ten or twenty here and there. Yeah, with the poster, know. I think we drive. The poster yeah, drive 4, was about 000. four. Yeah, right yeah, there and there. And then there were a huge. bunch of people that were bidding for the poster uh, as well. That the, uh, to to host the poster that dropped out when it got too expensive. Who then donated to the site? Well, anyway. I hate to expose you to your audience as a guy with a soft heart because <laughs> they may like to think of you as sort of you know like. Uh, Whatever, uh, but Kevin is actually a very kind and generous guy, and uh, hardly, you know. Well, you That's have my, been with me, yeah. <laughs> and uh, you have been to those kids down there, and uh, now well, let's I'm, see if I'm we not can do going more. to show them Red State. Yeah, but by all means, they haven't even seen Alice in Wonderland yet, or anything like that. Yeah, show them some of the nice. That, that's the yeah. I mean, first off, of course, build the place and 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 build all the necessities. Sooner or later, we got to send a DVD player down there. Sooner or later. <laughs> Actually, one of the nice things about these kids is that they have no TV, no cell phones, no texting, whatever. So they basically have all day to just be with one another and learn and talk to one. I think that's part of why that place is so pleasant and they're so So fuck so the DVD open. player. Yeah, fuck the DVD <laughs> player for that now. Out. We'll you know, I'm not corrupting them. Yeah, really. Uh, but I would like you to come down one day. That's never going to happen. Like <laughs> you just, just, you literally described it as hell on earth. I'll sit here and raise every dime you need from this room, but you, you didn't sell me on well, it, dude. You're okay. like naked people pooing outside. I can't, I can't do it. Well, there's something liberating about no that. No way. You ever try it? All I know is you went down there to, to build something so they can hide, hide the poo in privacy yes. and whatnot. Well, so, once it's built, you can come once the uh, poo is hidden. That's tough, man. You're the first person, you know, when I say to people, I'd like you to come. Yeah, I really want to come, but no. they never. You just said no way. That <laughs> is not no. happening. You just you were just not like going. tell on earth. I don't know how else to put it. <laughs> <laughs> and I'm 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 glad that the piece uh, that we're about to save is or that you're currently saving, and that all these people are dropping some coinage on us will help to save um, exists. I'm gonna take your word for it. I'll you're look at pictures. <laughs> <laughs> all right. I'll hear eyewitness Listen, testimony. Hey, you're honest. That's one of the things I like about you. Um, it's a it's a beautiful thing that you're doing, and it's a, a, a noble work. And and it's it's weird because you the people that wind up doing the the coolest things, the noble things, the people who are role models, don't set out to do it. It just they back into it. It happens. It's, it was unavoidable. It's in their matrix, but. They didn't do it to get noticed. They did it because it was the right thing. In the case of you writing the butch, uh, the book for, for Maury, in the case of uh, this charity here, in the case of all the Detroit fucking charity you do, which we'll talk about when we sit down again. I mean, this is this was great to talk about Have Faith Haiti, um, and, and hopefully we'll hit that number. But then the next is Detroit itself, mm. which uh, as we bring hit somebody there, there'll be lots of charity work. We're going to turn you that. into a, an honorary Detroiter by the time you're done there. Everybody will know you top and bottom. I mean, you can't, you can't ask for a more lofty position than to come in and make a movie about hockey in Detroit. Mm. I mean, they're going to, you thought that they made a fuss over me. I'm going to have them. Ba- they're going to do that bow thing. It's Kevin Smith. Let us get you a uh, just, dog. Just t- tell them to work for cheap. That'll be great. Oh well, that that kind of comes <laughs> the, territory. the territory. Wait, you said work? Yeah, you said work. Oh, okay, <laughs> employment. Yeah, wow, that's something new for us. Where and where you live? Where and in, in, uh, I live uh, just outside the city limits uh, in a in a town called Franklin. I've been the same. How far from the mile are you from the uh, uh, which mile? Uh, are you? I'm uh, a little less than five miles from eight mile. Five mile from eight mile. Yeah, five mile from eight mile i'm up uh, just shy of 13 
and that's how we do it in the D. You know? <laughs> and as uh, as uh, Eminem's uh, uh, or Kid Rock's buddy Uncle Cracker says, if heaven ain't a lot like Detroit, I don't want to go. Heaven ain't a lot like Detroit. I just as soon stay home. They ain't got no eight mile like they got up in the D. To send me to hell or Salt Lake City, it'd all be the same to me. <laughs> and that's how we look at look it. Look at you, man. The fucking musician still can't leave the writer. <laughs> I should have brought a keyboard in. I had no idea. That would have been awesome. Um, thank you for sitting down ah, uh, and chit-chatting. And we'll do it again because we, we stopped at Maury. Next time we sit down, we'll take from that six-year sabbatical um, where, where you didn't write and go forward from there. Because that's the next part of the story is – you know, yeah, I became a, a a different writer or the next stage of writing or the stage yeah. of the rocket drops off. Um, plenty yeah. more to go into and we'll talk about it then. But in the meantime, if you enjoyed any of this chatter and you have any, any change to toss these kids away, change is going to make a difference. When you say something like 500 bucks makes that big of a difference, you just sit there going like, okay, I bought sneakers that weren't quite 500, but Right. 90 bucks jesus christ you know so uh, there's money we all got some loose change uh floating around 100 bucks take care of that place for almost a week and uh, that's pretty remarkable uh, yeah totally that's the bad you can find no better way to spend here i'm telling you this is a guy who's always like go out and buy my shit don't buy my shit for a little while take <laughs> the money we're gonna buy, spend on my shit send it over here but man. only for a little while and then go back to buying kevin's shit <laughs> yeah i need that <laughs> um your shit's good shit it's, it's all right shit um at least it's shit that's done not in a hole in the ground jesus christ you terrified me with that <laughs> now i'm gonna now work i know how to get rid of you oh yeah wherever like if i ever don't have a seat for a vacation and you want to come <laughs> i go well kevin you know that they shit outside yeah, yeah, I'll be, you know? what <laughs> you're like i'm not going i'm done with this place i'm sorry i'll help you raise money for it <laughs> you can build some place where we can shit there privately thanks for being here sure. man and we'll talk yeah, again on, on the next uh, on the next time we uh, we sit down and do a spin interview find more funny shit like this at smodcast.com there's so many to choose from there are so many to choose from on the smodcast podcast network on Sundays, it's me and Scott doing the classic Smodcast, the show that started it all. Mondays, it's me and Ralph Garman doing Hollywood Babylon. There's so many to choose from. Tuesdays, you get a double shot of goodness, man. Malcolm Ingram's blowhard, as well as Red State of the Union Q&As, our podcast show about our forthcoming movie. There's so many to choose from. On Thursdays, drop the gloves with the puck nuts, the same guys that bring you Tell Em Steve Dave on Fridays. And don't forget on Saturdays, Jay and Silent Bob get old with me and Jason Muse. There's so many to choose from. You could try some shows that aren't so regular, just happen every once in a while, like Highlands, a peephole history, where me and people that grew up in the town I grew up look back at the town we grew up in. Smarriage at Smodcastle, where real live people get real live married by real Rev Kev. That'd be me. There's so many to choose from. Smodimations, that's where me and Scott are drawn as cartoons. They take little sections of Smodcast we've done and animate them, man, and make them even funnier somehow. And if you've ever been to Smodcastle, then you've met Matt Cohen, and Matt Cohen has his own show, Bagged and Boarded, which is also now at Smodcast.com.
There's so many to choose from. I know you keep telling me, man, but did you know that most of the podcasts at Smodcast.com are recorded live in front of a studio audience at Smodcastle, our theater out in Los Angeles on Santa Monica Boulevard between Wilcox and Cole. There's so many to choose from. Scott, even at Smodcastle, there are so many to choose from. Every week, you could see Malcolm Ingram do his show, Blowhard Live. You could see me and Jason Mewes doing Jay and Silent Bob Get Old. You could see Matt Cohen doing Bagged and Boarded. You can come see Tom Green do a show down there. You could see me and Mosier doing the occasional Smodcast 3D. There's so many to choose from. That's right. For one low price, 100 bucks, you could see every show. That happens in Smodcastle for a month. Every show you go, you get that basically comes down to be like four bucks a show. I mean, come on, you can't get a better deal than that. Go to smodcastle.com slash smodpass for the smodpass, or just stay right here on smodcast.com and listen to any of the shows that we throw up there free for nothing because we love you. And guess what? There's so many to choose from. That's right, Scott. There are so many to choose from. Smodcast.com. There's so many to choose from.